Hey everybody, Dr. Z, welcome to the show. I have Johnny B. Truant returning. He's the author of like 100 plus books, TV, all kinds of stuff. You are a creator and an expert in story. And we just, we did a show previously on um, The Story Solution, which is a book you wrote about like applying the principles of story to your own life and yes. transforming your life. But now, now that we've done all that BS, let's just dive deep into creativity, story, how we actually see the world, like viewpoints, um, how we can heal like an, in an alt middle kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. Like how do we see different views? Because when you're writing for characters, you're writing for bad guys, good guys. Each of them has motivations and truths and see themselves as good in some way. So how can we use that to kind of heal division? But wherever it goes, it goes, brother. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, so you recently, um, finished up a series, I think, called The Beam, yeah? I did, yes. And you wrote a author's note uh, after the last season, as you call it, of, yes. of The Beam, where you talked about the process of writing The Beam. And it became clear reading the author's note that you don't, it's not that you're constructing the story by planning and moving the pieces around and go, okay, well, this is gonna here and this is gonna happen here. You're finding the story in the present moment. It is, you're unearthing something mm -hmm. that exists in a way, right? Yes. So I sent you that author's note because I felt it was representative. And it was one of those things where like, you know, we, uh, we, we'd been talking about the same sorts of things and I found myself referencing common material, but that's actually true of everything that I do. Uh, it, the, the metaphor I originally, I, I first heard this from a Stephen King. So in Stephen King's book on writing, he says, I believe that stories are things that are found not things that are created. Uh. And he uses the metaphor of a buried, uh, like a dinosaur skeleton. And so you have all sorts of tools. You have jackhammers to get that started. And he, that's plot, like Stephen King is not an avid plotter. So a jackhammer is clumsy for Steve. And then, you know, <laughs> you're getting there with the paintbrush and the toothpicks and all sorts of things. You know, that is, but that the metaphor is excavating a story that already exists uh. in some sort of, I mean, I don't know how deep we want to go right now, but somewhere else, right? Not in me. It's the same way a marble sculptor would say, no, the, the, the sculpture's in there. I just unearth it. Yeah, I, I take the extra marble out of the way. With Stephen King, it's interesting because in your book, The Story Solution, you referred to that on writing mm -hmm. and you were talking about The Stand in particular yeah. uh, with Stephen King. And I'd read that and I remember going, wow, man, this is a journey. Like this is, a, you know, mm -hmm. it's like the Gunslinger series. It's like a freaking, like, did he plan this in advance? Because it ends in a crazy place and you're just wondering, and then you realize, no, he's unearthing the story as he goes. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a sense necessarily of the ending, yeah? Yeah, The Stand and The Dark Tower to me are two... I think both of those endings are a little controversial. Yeah. I know that uh, the Dark Tower in particular, and I won't spoil it. Right, people are like, yeah. people are like, uh, I don't know that I like that. And yeah. Stephen King actually says in the author's note of the, um, the the Dark Tower, the final book, he says, "I don't know that it's a good uh, a good conclusion, but I do know it's the right conclusion." Ah, uh, yes. And yeah. I would totally agree. I with agree that. with that. Yeah. And having if, read the whole thing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you, again, I won't say what happens, but I can see why a lot of people would be like, well, I don't know that I like that answer. Right. But it's thematically correct. And I think that he discovered that rather than inventing it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, another thing where I, I get the sense that it was a discovery is uh, the sec that, you know, the reboot Battlestar Galactica series from mm -hmm. the 2000s. We, my wife and I were addicted to that series. Love that series. It, amazing, right? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. storytelling, oh, wow. Amazing. Wow. From the first episode with the big apocalypse and the silence attacking, mm -hmm. you're just riveted. You're just, okay, I, I gotta see every single one of this. In fact, there was a Portlandia episode where they made fun of him, like binge watching all the <laughs> Battlestar Galacticas and finding the 
the author of the series to try to convince him oh, to write. Oh, I, I did. I did see that episode. Right? I did, yeah. He goes and finds him and if he gets the mm. wrong guy. It's like some <laughs> random African-American dude in like Portland who's like, sure, I'll write the rest <laughs> of the series. But um, the, the sense that the ending of that um, felt really interesting. You're just like, wait, what? Like that's what was, oh, huh. Mm-hmm. And I later read that they had, again, they did not plan that out. It was sort of found as they went. Yeah, I think that the idea of they're making this up as they go along is is it an insult that is levied right. at storytellers a lot? Right, 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 right. Um, but in in that's the only way I can write. You know, is it right or is it wrong? The answer is uh, it's all I can do. Yeah. Um, so I, I write most things with a partner, Sean, Sean Platt, and Sean and I. Um, Truman and Platt. That's Truman, on the books. Well, unfortunately, it's Platt and Truman. Truman that son of a bitch. Oh. But the question is, does it matter more to be first, or does it matter to be that anchor of the real last? You know you what? Know? I'm gonna I'm gonna side with I'm not gonna tell you who side I can I'm on. see it either way. Well, it doesn't matter because the alphabet does what it wants. That bastard. <laughs> uh, but but we 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 do write together, and we've tried. I mean, we've been writing together for about ten years now. There's very little that I haven't written with Sean, mm. and so we have tried. You know, we're we're optimizers. We're always trying to find and hone the best way to tell the story, and anything that that has us predicting more than a few chapters out fails. Ah. Um, I remember he gave me one outline once and it was a full book because usually we'll, sometimes we'll deviate more or less. So there Mm. are full book outlines that have been somewhat successful. He gave me this one and it was a full book outline. We've learned not to do that anymore. And chapter one, I took a, a button hook and ignored the rest of it. You know, you, you, you get in a groove where you start to go, well, I, I actually think that this is happening. And I mean, another aspect of this, and this is maybe jumping ahead a little bit, is there have been a bunch of times when we have painted ourselves into a corner in a way that I think a lot of writers would have gone back and said, well, that didn't work out. We'd better go back and change that. But to Sean and I, it's like, in some ways, that's a sacrilege because mm. what is what exists exists even if it hasn't been released. Mm. So the season of the beam, we, we, we do things in episodes and seasons. You can think in terms of books. Yeah. Uh, so book four, season four of the beam wasn't out when I wrote season five. And there are things in season four where you're like, oh man, that's problematic. Yeah. Like we didn't, oh man, we got to tie that up. But rather than going back and quote unquote fixing it, uh, we never do. We work with what is there because it feels like to do so is to not do so is to ignore something that is factually true. Interesting. You're actually unearthing a real thing in, yeah. the, in the story. And you're basically lying if you if you change it. Yeah. 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 So my favorite example of this is it's actually in the world of the beam. We have way more than the beam. I don't mean to sound like that's 90% of what we do, but well, it well, is well, in well, this world. The, the quick premise of the beam. Oh, so the premise yeah. of the beam is it takes place in the year 2097. And it's basically a hyper internet. We got a lot of comments of people that said, this is the most realistic um, version of the future that I've seen because it, it it's understated. Yeah. Like, I mean, people have stuff that's implanted in their bodies and nanobots and stuff, but it's not... It doesn't feel glitz and lasers and, you know, it feels, it feels grounded. It takes place on earth. It's very political. Yeah. So one of the, um, one of the facets of it that people seem to like the most is that there are two political parties. Uh, one is called the directorate, which mm-hmm. is, um, like a, there's a, a minimum that they get like a, a, a guaranteed wage say, mm-hmm. but most of those jobs are unnecessary. They are, they're strictly, they could be handled by AI, you know, they could just kind of not work and they get this fixed 
uh, dole. Mm. Um, and the other party is the enterprise, where there's no minimum, meaning that you could fail catastrophically and end up in the gutter with no social safety net, or you could be the entrepreneur who makes a bazillion dollars. Uh, uh. And they have to elect which one they want to do, uh. and they can switch every so often. So. But that's the sort of thing is it, it's a grounded, say, interpersonal, political, interpolitical sort of sort of story. Right. Um, grounded in some realism. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the story. But um, we had a uh, what was the sequence of events here? OK, so we wrote two seasons of The Beam. I think this is what we did. And then between seasons two and three, or maybe it was between one and two, it doesn't matter. We wrote a nonfiction, sorry, fiction as nonfiction book in the world of the beam written by a fictional author. So the beam is written by- <laughs> A book by, within a book within a book. Yeah. Uh, kind of, it's Almost. within. A, it's an in-world book. Yeah. So Platt and Truant are the authors of the beam, but the author of this book called Plugged is Sterling Gibson, who doesn't exist. Ah. Now we're writing as Sterling Gibson, who is essentially like if Malcolm Gladwell were in this universe, he'd be Sterling Gibson. Wow. He's writing Malcolm Gladwell's type, type books about the, the world. The world of the beam. So the tipping right. point of the beam world. Exactly or, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. So in this, he interviews this uh, character that, well, he's not a character in Sterling Gibson's world. He's a real dude called Clive Spooner, who's from the UK. And he built this far side of the moon radio array. And he's this really famous character in the world of the beam. But Clive says something about he was in a certain place in a certain year. And the upshot was that we got a reader who emailed back and said, because uh, well, he, he was at the uh, World Cup. And it was a year that the World Cup didn't happen. And I, I guess this is, I'm usually pretty good with research. Stupid American, I didn't know that there, I figured it was every year. I just, I didn't know. And he was like, an <laughs> Englishman would not get the year of the World Cup wrong. Right. And so we thought, well, we need to go fixed plugged. We need to go. And then we thought, Wait no, it's written. Yeah. So what do we do? So we had Sterling Gibson, the author, our Mal Malcolm Gladwell, ex he is in the third season of The Beam. And his credibility is called into question in part because he made this mistake. <laughs> so it's actually the story evolved from the mistake yeah. that happened. Yes. It happened. Yes. Yeah. And characters, like there are characters in the book that say, we can't trust Sterling Gibson. An Englishman would never get that wrong. He made this mistake. Like Clive Spooner was this really obvious thing and Sterling Gibson missed it. So we wow, passed the buck to our fictional character. That's awesome. Well, you know, what's interesting is like, again, to make a parallel to the real world of other things that aren't writing, when I do shows, I don't typically edit them. I'm often stream of consciousness live. Mm -hmm. If I make a mistake, it keeps me up at night. So what it does is it then, I don't go delete the video. I go make another video that either talks about the mistake, mm -hmm. has a meta commentary on why I would make the mistake, or gives the correct information in a different framing or whatever. But it is, it's like that happened. Like I, in a way, I'm unearthing mm -hmm. this as we go, right? That's why like people go, ah, oh, we change your mind on this or that in the pandemic. It's like, no, no, that's what I, that was the truth at that moment, yes. as far as I was concerned, as best as we can do it. And you have to be flexible. And the thing is trying to revise like trying to go back and edit the past to think that it does feel sacrilegious. Mm -hmm. it, that's why when, you know, like when Joe Rogan is asked to, you know, apologize or whatever, and Spotify starts deleting podcasts and all that to a creator, whatever you feel about, yeah, there's misinformation in the vaccine stuff. You feel like, man, that's a, that's a, no, you don't do that. You just don't do that. So it's interesting, but not all mm. authors work this way, right? This is a no. particular, yeah. No, but I mean, we have to work by the seats of our pants. I mean, and when I say we, I mean, Sean is 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 world in creation. I, I'm, I'm the one who's kind of like navigating on the first draft and we meet regularly and he kind of like pitches me ideas because at that phase it's in, 
we, we alternate control. You know, yeah. Sean is in charge at the beginning. I'm in charge in the middle. He's in charge at the end. And so in that phase, it's like he'll popcorn ideas with me and I'll kind of like, oh, well, okay, that works. But what if we did this and we figure it out? Mm. And the, I mean, I'm going to speak well of my own books. So Please, it's possible that other people might read and say, well, they're making up as they go along and they suck. Like right. that's entirely possible. But to my mind, I'm always amazed how everything comes together. Yeah. And that's what that author's note was largely pointing to was, this is a really complicated world. And the fact that you always feel, what we always feel like toward the end, this is never gonna come together. Mm. It's never gonna come together. But then it always does. And the way that that feels to me is because the answer is there to begin with. We yeah. just have to find what the answer is. <laughs> the dinosaur skeleton that you're excavating. You have to have faith. Mm -hmm. Faith. So, I, okay, uh, let's talk about faith for a second because I think it's really interesting. Um, this word faith is a very triggering word for many people who say aren't religious or are atheists or scientists or whatever. I actually see faith as very interesting. Faith is a deep intuition that something is true. It's, it's, it's not a foundless belief. It's a gut feeling that, you know what? This feels right, this feels true. It's not like, like if you could tell me, hey Z, you know, Zeus is God and Athena sprang from his head and that's just reality. And you, you better believe that because that's our religion. Then I have to believe it, right? Mm -hmm. Faith is saying, mm -mm, there's some deep truth here that I feel into and yeah, and you're pointing at it. It's not perfect, but it's unveiling itself. And so having faith that that story is there mm -hmm. allows you to unearth it in a way that you're confident that you're not constantly second guessing, right? Yeah. Does it having a partner help with that? It does because then, uh, so basically I learn things by writing them out mm. and learning things by talking them out is cousin to that. What I can't do is sit by myself in a dark room and, and quote unquote, you know, get down to brass tacks and figure it out. I, yeah. I don't work that way. Yeah. So yeah, yeah having a partner really helps to, with that. So th this is a valuable sort of thing for a lot of people. For me, when we were in our peak Z-Dog phase, which was making big music videos and you know doing these kind of shows and talking about moral injury and healthcare and these kind of things. So this was like 2016, maybe 2015 to 2019 before I moved back to the Bay Area. Mm. I had a, I had a, basically a writing partner, Tom Heineber, who's is just a hilarious guy. He's young, like at the time he was under 30 and I was this like 40 something year old guy. And we would go back and forth and it was always like, it, it, we were unearthing mm -hmm. this stuff. And in fact, we had a rule, like don't plan stuff too much. Like, please don't write a script, never mm -hmm. do any of that. It's like, when we would shoot our music videos, they would they would find themselves. We'd have a few ideas like, hey, I know that this, the character in this video is this kind of thing and the ethos is this, the theme mm -hmm. is this. And then we would go on the shoot in, and it was often in the hospital. So there's all this time constraints. So the, the environment would mold kind of how the thing, the story would tell out and it would unfold. And it just always happened to work. Mm -hmm. Even if even if it didn't get a ton of views or whatever, we didn't get that external validation. That We look at that video and go, that shit was awesome. That was us. <laughs> that was that moment, right? And I cannot really emphasize more how for, for people who work like that, it's it's kind of painful when people go, yeah, you're just making the shit up or you're just lazy. You know, you're not like, no, no, no. Lazy. Lazy mm -hmm. is a great one. Like, oh, you're yeah. like, I, and actually at, at times I would accuse Tom of like, Tom, you're just lazy, dude. Like you, you just don't like to, put the sweat equity in. Cause when we first met, I was in doctor mode. Like, no, everything has to be planned. We need a script. Every beat to the minute has to be figured out. And he's like, he would just be like, trust me, like 
it'll be better if you do it this way. And I'm yeah. like, I don't trust you. Then we made a video called Readmission, which was the first video we made together. And it was this parody of R. Kelly, which by the way, now you get canceled if you do R. Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> I refuse to remove it because it's done. It's on yes, earth. It's done. It's reality. And uh, it was a seat of our pants kind of thing in the hospital. And it got, it was went viral, got like two or 3 million views on YouTube. And I was like, okay, you're right, Tom. But that letting go, mm -hmm. that surrendering to what actually is instead of what you think ought to be is a powerful piece of that creative process. I get why people think it's lazy because we have this Puritan work ethic thing mm -hmm. that says if it's not difficult and if it's not, if it's not difficult and if it's too fun, then you can't be doing it right. You yeah. need to do something that feels more painful, yeah. that you hate a little bit and that takes a really long time. Sean and I have done a lot of um, public speaking. Um, she, we, we spoke at, we used to do a lot of writer education. We've talked a lot about story and, and we were speaking at, at this conference and we were the keynote and we had a handful of slides that we were like, we had submitted ahead of time because they required it. We didn't mm. want to submit slides, but we did. And then, right, you know, beforehand, while the other things were going on, we said, okay, so we should sit down and really plan this. We should actually plan it. And we went to a, to a Pete's, to Pete's Coffee, <laughs> and we sat down and we, we, we looked at a page. We were willing, the point of the story is we were willing to do the work. Like we sat yeah. down, we had pencil and paper, we were all, and it just became apparent quickly that we were going to ruin it by ruin, doing that. Destroy it, yeah. And we we went up there and we said, you know, that it was like eight slides and we said, that's enough. And it was very successful. Like, I, I don't like to over plan. It ruins a spontaneity, it ruins an energy. You know, I mean, we, I think we have an over-reliance on quantifiable things that we can demonstrable things that we can see and touch and put in a bullet list. And, I, and I'll go even further and say, I think that's a left brain ascendancy kind of thing. Our left brain loves to, it controls our right side. It loves to grasp, it loves to simplify, it loves to categorize, and it loves to make something static that may actually be a living process. Mm -hmm. Right brain is different. According to Ian McGilchrist, who's written about this, a book called The Master and His Emissary. And um, in fact, I'll put a link to an interview with McGilchrist in this uh, show notes, if I recall to do that, because again, I'm making this up as we go too. But th this idea that left brain is the servant of the right, but it gets cocky because part of the personality of the left brain is it knows what's up because it loves to reduce things to parts. Whereas right brain sees things contextually, relationally as a process evolving. It's always looking for new things, novelty. Left brain's opposite. And the preparatory process that people demand a lot of times, they just, you're lazy if you don't do this. And again, mm -hmm. I love that you call it the puritanical work ethic. It is an American thing. Like we don't take vacation. We do this kind of way of living. Mm -hmm. There's a guilt that happens. Like, oh, now I feel guilty that mm -hmm. I'm not putting in the work, right? Like, uh, so when I do speaking, cause we, you know, we share this thing in common too, that, um, and watch the last video we did to see how we connected in the first place. But the, 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 the idea that um, clients seem to expect when you're speaking for them, like especially big health systems. Okay, so you have like what, a slide deck of this many slides and you're gonna give it to us in advance. And you're gonna fill out the continuing medical yes. education parameters and you're gonna do all of this and we're gonna get on three calls and we're gonna outline all the different parts and this and that. And I'm like, that's not how ZDog MD works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's when you start referring yourself in your third person because <laughs> you're getting defensive. You're like, the Z does not play right. that. It is, it's, I'll have a structure, but it's gonna be spontaneous and it's gonna be for your audience. And that's why we're on this call. So I can learn everything I can about your audience. So it becomes part of me. Mm -hmm. So when I open that hole in the universe where that talk comes out, it's gonna, those pieces are gonna come together in a way that we're unearthing something. Mm -hmm. And they are terrified. Yeah, I, I believe it. Yeah. 
they're just like, wait, what? We're paying you how much to do what? Yeah. And then you do it and they're like, wow, that was the best talk we've ever had. Like, how, how did that happen? I'm like, how did you plan that out? How did you, I, yeah. I didn't plan it out. I didn't, mm -hmm. we got on the call. I noticed you incorporated some of the stuff in an interesting way. Yeah, I didn't plan how to incorporate it. It just comes out. And sometimes it comes out like the minute before the talk, your opening joke comes out. Cause you're like looking at the crowd, you're hearing what the previous speaker said and you just go, oh. But, but I, I don't think everybody needs to work that way. But I will say for people who do, it's very validating to see like someone like you, who's a very successful author, hundreds of books and quite articulate at what you do to say, oh, you know, you're finding the story. You're the conduit. Yeah. Well, there's a strong bias against things that uh, that we can't easily see and touch and feel, and that is the domain of creativity. And mm. so, if you're, you know, a lot of people don't feel they're creative. Well, no wonder, because we're all growing <laughs> up in the society where we say, so, uh, you know, I, I have some of my story on the last call that we did, but I have two degrees. One is in molecular genetics, and the other is in philosophy. Now, the easy thing, I did a career day at my daughter's school, and they ask, you know, what schooling was required for this job? And the answer kind of is nothing. Like I didn't, I didn't take any writing courses either other than just standard high school English. And, but the, the answer is to like the philosophy and the genetics, like, is that wasted? Well, no, because my books are very heavy on philosophy and they're very heavy on science. Like I, I'm a Michael Crichton style of writer. Right. And so everything that I do, I feel like my entire life should be tax deductible. Every vacation that I take, every show that I watch. <laughs> but and the number, the amount of time that I'll I'll do what looks like nothing, but that is working. That is what working looks like. Laying on the couch, zoning out is sometimes working because you need that. And creativity is listening to a voice that doesn't feel like a voice you should listen to in a way. And I think it takes some practice. Um, you know, I mentioned in the last one that I, we just recently watched Dead Poets Society. Do you remember the movie? Do you remember the, the detail of the scene? It's been a long time, yeah. So there's this scene where Robin Williams' character takes Ethan Hawke's character, like 17-year-old Ethan Hawke, where he just looks so young. And he's the one who, he's really shy, doesn't want to be in front of the room, and he asks him to deliver a poem. And he doesn't have anything. And so Robin Williams does this thing where he covers his face, covers his eyes in front of the class. And he says, say the first thing that comes in your mind about Walt Whitman. There's a picture of Walt Whitman. And he <laughs> says, he's a, what do you say? A snaggletooth madman or something. And then he had the scene escalates where he's just pulling things out of nowhere. And he has this kind of cool, weird, you know, poem about the dark void and like, it's really cool. Yeah. Now, obviously a script writer created that scene, but that's sort of like, that's basically kin to free writing is tapping into that that deeper well, rather than what is right here, you almost need to blind yourself from what is normally the things that we feel we need to focus on to reach that. I'll, I'll, I'll say that's absolutely the case. If I'm writing lyrics for a parody, or I'm thinking of like how to talk about something even in COVID that seems like, oh, this is a reductionist medical left brain kind of thing. No, it's absolutely the opposite. You're trying to make connections. You're trying to do something that the mainstream media doesn't do, which is, put something into its context while also being able to reduce it into a part that people understand, but then putting mm -hmm. it back in its context. That's, if you're talking about masks, if you're talking about vaccines, you cannot talk about those things without the context. What's the culture like? What's the spread like in that community? What's the general uh, moral palette of the community around liberty versus oppression around being compelled to do something? Mm -hmm. Where does that fit into how hospitals are overwhelmed? If you can't put those things together, so how do you do that? You could plan it out, you could do all that, or you could feel into what that is like. And that means silencing 
some of the noise of the particular so that the whole emerges. That's where the, the right brain, which doesn't have language, I mean, sorry, it doesn't have spoken language. It has concepts and symbols, it has, it has intelligence, but it's the, it's the silent hemisphere, but it's the one doing that contextual thinking. To do that, you have to have that silence, which means sometimes it means working out, like going on a treadmill and just turning mm -hmm. off the brain mm -hmm. and letting these ideas come. Everybody has their muse process, right? Where you, you allow that channeling. Meditation, so you said sitting on the couch doing nothing. That's what, that's what meditation is. It's sitting, the best way I can describe the most effective meditation that I have found or has found me is it's this kind of Zen shikantaza is the fancy way of saying it. It's basically sitting and doing nothing. It's allowing what happens to happen without any judgment and letting the attention go where it goes. And when it clicks into flow, things emerge that are just, you could never even, how did that even happen? Mm -hmm. It's opening a hole in reality and letting what comes out, comes out. And that informs everything I do. So like you said, every single thing I do should be tax deductible. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> if you're making a living doing it. I've had people quote stuff back to me that is my stuff. And I don't remember right. Me too. Mm-hmm. I'll be like, when like, did what I say that? What asshole said that? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I, I'm usually very self-flattering. Very flattering. I'll be like, oh, wow, that's really good. <laughs> like, I, where did that come from? Because I don't think I can do that. But there, I mean, I feel like I'm channeling when I'm writing. Yeah. I just get into flow and I, I actually type very fast. Um, if I'm in flow, I can do 2,000 words an hour. Wow. Um, but that's coming from something else. I mean, I need a good starter. I need to really feel the world. I need... I feel like I need that portal open. You know, I, I need to like really know the characters and know the setting and know the elements of the world. And then then I just describe what I see. And the characters will do things that I don't see coming at all. And, you know, we've had huge pivots that have been like, whoa, where did that come from? That's a really cool reveal. And it was not planned at all. Not a reveal. Well, it's a reveal in that you're revealing what is happening in the story. To us. To you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's nuts. Mm -hmm. But but the thing is, I believe it 100% because that is the process of the of this unfolding of creativity. And I'll say this, like we'll tie it into our mutual uh, admiration society for Angelo DeLulo, yes. the guy who wrote the book, Awake, It's Your Turn, talking about spirituality, awakening, and so on. He is passionate about improv comedy. So during our meditation retreat, we would have these sessions in the evening where we would break silence and we would do these different... Uh, group activities. Nice. And I thought, look, dude, I'm like, group activities, so stupid. Like, come on, dude, what is this? Like kumbaya, like where are we gonna chant and do this stupid stuff, like new age garbage? Nope. It was perfect because what he did was he goes, like, we're gonna do improv now. And I'm like, no, I, I've never done improv. <laughs> right. I'm like, this is, no, come on. We're gonna try to make each other laugh. No, it wasn't that at all. He says, improv is dropping everything into presence, being absolutely here right now and being so present for the person you're working with that you're listening intently, you're inhabiting this space, and then the part that you come out, it, you don't even know what's happening. Mm -hmm. You're just going. And it's a yes and. So you're building on instead of negating. You're not inhibiting. You're not trying to stop. You're, you're facilitating a flow. And what comes out is bigger than the sum of its parts. You could never plan it. And I was like, I don't believe it. We did it. I believe it now. Like it, it's exactly, and it's, it's got that spiritual center of presence, mm -hmm. a revealing of authentic reality as it is in the now moment, which is the only moment there is. Mm -hmm. So when you work with your partner, it almost feels like it's a kind of an improv thing, but, but, but there's no self there. You're just, the self gets out of the way and the story just comes through. 
Yeah, and it, it does take a lot of faith. In mm. that in that author's note, I described it as, and, and actually I think this is also Stephen King metaphor, it feels like you know, you're know you halfway th- across the ocean in a rowboat. Mm. And it, it, it does feel that way. It feels like, well, here I am, you know, I don't I don't know how I'm gonna get home, but here I am. And and you just kind of I mean, again, a hundred books plus mm. I've written right now. And and so I'm very familiar with this process, but that doesn't stop it from being scary. The beam is a very complicated world. We have it's multiple POVs, so we have a whole bunch of different characters. There are conspiracies and counters to those conspiracies and conspiracies to counter the conspiracies. You know, <laughs> like there's nested loops. It's very like People are different ages than they appear because they have nanobot rejuvenation. It's this whole thing. Mm. People come back to life and upload to computers. And so trying to keep that together is like, oh, man, how are we possibly going to keep track of that? But it it all comes together. It always all comes together. And I'm sure I miss little. Yeah. But but I don't think we miss many. Like, I don't think we miss many of like, well, you never explained that. You just let that drop. I just I've been at this enough to know that we really aren't dropping too many balls. Yeah, yeah. And it just comes from waiting for it. Well, uh, the you know I can only speak to my own experience and the things that I do. Like in medicine, it's tricky because this improvisational aspect of it, and I, I, that's not even the right word because improvisation implies that you're doing something. In other words, you're creating something, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like that. What it feels like is you're channeling. You're uncovering it. You're uncovering it. You're unearthing it. You're excavating it, mm-hmm. right? So in medicine where that happens, cause you have all that left brain stuff where, okay, you got textbooks of how like algorithms of how to run things, right? But when you're sitting with the patient, like you you have type one diabetes. I mm-hmm. found that out when you visited mm-hmm. me cause you have a continuous glucose monitor. You have an app that kind of is looking at this, like your whole world experience from when you were 13, mm-hmm. um, unearthing this type one diabetes. Um, and managing it and being part of your life is is like this whole unique thing to you. So as a doctor, if I were sitting with you and talking about it, I would want to open a space where that story came out and it interacted with my conditioning and knowledge and what precipitated out was the plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is almost like an entity in itself. And, um, and that's the best thing because then we're both channeling our own stories and what's happening is then a solution that works for you, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, I'm just curious what you think about all that. Well, I mean, I think that telling stories, I think more people should learn to tell stories consciously. I think they should learn to notice the stories that are around them. And and for a little more reference on this, refer to the earlier episode that we did on the story solution. And it's because, so I came to you, this is the short version, largely through the, the mindfulness and meditation stuff. And I would say that right now, it, there's been more Angelo than than the other guys, right? Right. So right now it's Angelo dominant. Yes. And uh, I feel like when I listen to that and I, if I listen to my own story solution like I did to prepare for this, so I, I reacquaint myself with it and I go, oh, these are the same thing. Yeah. Like it, it, stories for me are about articulation. They're not that way for everybody, but because it is an, an existing found fossil, mm. what I'm doing is articulating it. I'm saying there's a joint there and there's a bone there and there's like, I'm articulating that. And so- articulating the ineffable the ineffable feels to me like tapping into that awakening space ah. and and so i mean we can talk about some of this but yeah this is good but but knowing you know knowing thinking about story lets me see all sorts of different perspectives that i wouldn't normally see the articulating the ineffable mm-hmm. is such a powerful idea because it is a paradox 
even in its wording, right? Mm -hmm. You're giving word to something that's unwordable, ineffable, unspeakable. And when you talk about Angelo's thing with uh, with um, Awakening, you know, when he does improv, the other thing I was gonna mention without uh, relating to that, which is relating to this, is the ineffable, in other words, the present moment, which is, or, or hey, sorry to interrupt this episode, it's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also wanna hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at zdogmd.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me. And we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is if you wanna be a part of this community and support the show, join our supporter tribe, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, Locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journeyless journey. How are we gonna transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are epiphenomena of us. Until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They'll, they're just an expression of our own delusion. So being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. Unfiltered reality, what reality is like when you drop all the labels and the, mm -hmm. the language and the left brain stuff that puts filters on it, perceptual filters on it, time, space, labels, stories, belief. When that drops and it's just this, there aren't words that can properly describe it, but there are words that can point to the space where that happens, that can evoke your own mind inhabiting that experience for you. Mm -hmm. And that's the most powerful kind of transmitting that a teacher of that stuff can do. So Angelo, sometimes on a video, it doesn't come across as clearly that, th than it does in person. Like when I'm sitting interviewing Angelo, he's transmitting this because I'm making eye contact with him. There's unspoken stuff that he's transmitting in his body language. And I'm in a state where that ineffable space, that open potential where the stories are, coalescing out of, right, is vibrating with presence. And you feel it that way. And it sounds, see, even when you say it, you sound like an idiot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like what is it vibrating with, what is this guy, like Deepak Chopra, like mm -hmm. bald Deepak Chopra? <laughs> um, no, it, it, that's the best words I can use to point at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know, it's, uh, I had a really profound thing and I, I lost it, but I'm sure Dude, it'll come back. Welcome to, that's what it's like too. Yeah. So sometimes it'll happen where you're in that space and something will come up and it'll strike you like, oh shit, like that's so important. And then you'll you'll continue down the rabbit hole and then you'll get distracted and it's gone. And then trying to grab it back is so fascinating because you can't. What you have to do is drop everything open and it comes back when it's ready to come back. That's the other thing. Like, what's writer's block for, for you like? Like how is that manifest? Writer's block is usually something having to do with external circumstances, not the story mm. itself. Mm. So I had a really hard time writing uh, during moves, you know, and those moves were, I mean, I, I knock on wood, I haven't had like seriously traumatic stuff, you know, recently, which is, which is great. But 
that said, they they are disturbing, right? Like, and they did happen during I would say transition periods in career, and so it's more like I can't access that space as easily. Mm. It's less about like the story. I can't figure out what to do with the story, and it's less about I can't. It's more about I can't get into that flow state. Dude, that's absolute. That's really, really a direct explanation of that. Because mm. when, when I find that uh, creativity is at an impasse, it's that. Like I know the stuff is there. It's not like it doesn't exist. You, you just can't unearth it. Like the 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 state of relaxation or awareness or presence. And it's actually, it's not, I think the word relaxation is a little tricky. Because for example, when you're meditating, um, in the kind of style I was talking about that, uh, just sit there and don't make anything, just, mm -hmm. just be there, um, see what happens. Uh, that is an alert, intense, relaxed presence. It is not a lazy, muddy, foggy, um, what's the word, blurry kind of presence mm -hmm. that you get like in a pseudo dream state or something. It is absolutely alert to the point where if, if, if I meditate for say three hours a day, which sometimes I'll do, I'll get up at the crack of dawn. Sometimes I'll meditate five hours a day because I'll get up at four, mm. do two hours and two hours before bed, whatever it is, I find that I lose weight hmm. without exercising because there's no time to go to the gym. I'm eating the same. And I think it's because the state of alert presence that it requires to channel that experience is highly metabolically active for the brain. It takes a lot of oh, I can see that. energy. Mm -hmm. And with I, I, I wonder if it's the same with creativity in the form of writing. Might be. Mm. I mean, isn't it a shame that we only give priority to the the mind states that we can quantify? Oh, can you do math? <laughs> oh, are you getting productive work done that we can we can put on a on a timesheet or on a spreadsheet? We we don't access. I mean, the idea of a meditative state or some sort of a creative flow state are generally denigrated as being not. I mean, we've talked a little bit. We talked earlier about you know. I, I think that when people are. Uh, on certain drugs or in like even mentally unstable in ways that other people would say that person's off their rocker. I think that they're just experiencing a different mental state. I don't know that we should say that one is right or one is wrong, a different reality as it were. Because what what is what is reality to any given person other than their internal experience? Like, I mean, there's a very, if you think about that for a second, there's a very real way in which What's going on in the world kind of doesn't matter because mm -hmm. your experience, 100% of your experience happens inside your skull. 100%. You're on closed circuit TV with everything else. You're watching a, an electrical signal relayed by an organ out here and you're seeing it in your brain. You know, what is the experience of, it's that hard consciousness problem that, yeah. that Donald Hoffman talks about. And if that's true, I mean, maybe we're getting a little bit too deep already, but it's just like, I don't know why why were we so fixated on the idea of an outside reality? If, if you're if you're if you if you're stoned, and you have really great ideas, why do we say, well, that person's stoned, so therefore those ideas aren't valid? Uh, I don't know that that really follows for me. Yeah, and you could say the same thing about, like you said, with with what we label mental illness. Mm -hmm. The highly creative types often are on that spectrum. If you take a, the DSM five out and you start diagnosing mm -hmm. them, you could come up with lots: bipolar, you know, schizotypal, schizophrenic. There's lots of different labels you could put on them. But in reality, is their internal experience less valid in that it doesn't um, it doesn't correspond with some of the aspects of our shared collective external hallucination, you know? I mean, the fact that we can have dreams that are vivid, 
and sometimes lucid, the fact that we can actually know that we're dreaming and yet be mm -hmm. creating a world in real time. And if you really think about that, you're, you're creating an entire world with the richness of the textures and the colors and the reality and the stories. You have an internal mind state in that world. You're a character in that world. Mm -hmm. You're creating a story or unearthing. Are you creating it? The story is being shown to you and that is not in the real world, but it feels as valid to that dreaming self as anything else. Well, haven't, haven't you ever had a memory that you were absolutely positive was correct and somebody proved to you that it was wrong? Or Absolutely. like eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable and notoriously easy to you know modify yep. by the words you use yep. when do, asking about that. Do, do, do you know the story of Shazam, the uh, Shaquille O'Neal movie? I don't. So Shaquille O'Neal made a, a movie uh, where he was a genie called Shazam. And um, when you tell people that, they'll go, yeah, it, yeah, I remember that movie. Mm. Turns out that movie was never made. It's, it's a collective delusion. Like there was some other movie that was kind of similar-ish and the guy kind of, I forget exactly oh, the see, details. Now, now I'm wondering that Shazam did not exist? It did, that movie with Shaquille O'Neal called Shazam does not exist. What did, what did he have? A, he had a movie where he was a genie though, right? Was I, it called something else? It was something else or I don't, I don't even know. Is, is Shazam the one with, with, it was more modern with the- that, so there was a, there was an old like like TV show called Shazam. Well, the guy would yeah. be like Shazam. It was like a superhero. Yeah. But there was no. I think it was something. Here, watch. Let's Google it because this was so interesting. Because you start questioning yourself. Yeah. Right. Like, what is reality? Well, that's that. Um, what 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 would the the, the um, what's that Mandela effect? Exactly. It, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's exactly that. Okay, so there was a movie called Kazam. Kazam, gotcha. Right, but if you, if you say Shazam, mm -hmm. people will be like, oh yeah, that was a movie with, I don't know if that was the example that was used because there was one that was used with the effect that you mentioned. But the idea that we actually create, actually that's pretty close. So that's actually not a great example. Mm -hmm. What was the story Well, now? it's usually, the, the ones that I hear are when Nelson Mandela died. That's right. And you'll hear about Looney Tunes, T-O-O-N-S versus T-U-N-E-S. Right. Um, Berenstain Bears is another one. People are like, no, it was spelled the other way. And it's not right. So we, we actually create reality on the fly mm -hmm. based on all our conditioning. And it comes from an unconscious place and it's created. And so the question then is, what is reality? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? and And- you can go in the postmodernist crazy way and say, well, there's no reality. It's all just constructed and there's no truth, but except that you just violated that because you say there's no truth, which and is a truth. expecting us to accept it expecting as Expecting as a truth. And um, the idea that then you and I both kind of intuitively know, and many people intuitively know that some truths are more true than others. For example, the earth is probably round based on everything <laughs> we can tell. And if I stab you in the heart right now with a knife, you're gonna die. Like. Those are reasonably valid in this particular frame. So there's something about, we do construct reality, but it in some ways in the gross reality is constrained. Um, but the bottom line is story. Who's to say that story doesn't actually objectively exist and you are unearthing it? Well, I mean, maybe this is a good entrance into the alt middle sorts of things that we were talking about, like social healing. I think there's some of this to be done with story. I mean, our our studio's tagline, I work with a studio called Sterling and Stone, and our motto is we change the world with story. Mm. Kind of grandiose, but it's the case. And I just, um, I, 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 I keep coming back to, so I've said this a few times with, I have these deep philosophical conversations with my son. And I was, I said something recently and he, he stopped me because I tend to repeat the same stories. And he said, <laughs> sounds he like said, me. dad, are, are you going to tell me again that you, you're, you don't think there's any objective reality? 
So apparently this is something I've said a lot. And I don't mean it in some sort of solipsistic, existential darkness sort of thing. I just mean, if you really stop and think about it, why is it, if you're, if you're asleep and then you wake up, why is it that the awake version is considered somehow fundamentally different from the asleep version? And again, I'm not trying to make a philosophical argument. I'm, I'm just, why is it that we do that? Is it, is it points of veracity? Like I, I can talk to you and we can compare notes and we can agree that there's this table in front of us. But I, I, don't, I don't know why I should trust this. You know, how are you? You're an icon. We already established this. <laughs> you know, like exactly. why, why is it that this particular kind of, of veracity where I can touch it and I can feel it, why is that fundamentally different? Because when you're in a dream, when you're stoned, when you're insane, like these are things that are, if somebody feels like they have bugs on their skin, who are we to say that there's no bugs on their skin? Because yeah. to them, they are. They're they bugs. are actually there to them. So why is it that that, valid, that reality is not valid and ours is? By the way, that term in, in medical term is often happens in people who are withdrawing from alcohol. It's called formication, mm. form mica or forma from the Latin for ant. Like you have ants crawling mm. on your skin. It's really interesting. But the, but the, actually back to this point of like, how do we know what, like why do we make this distinction between the dreaming state and the gross reality state? Bernardo Castro would argue, mm, there's no reason not to believe that this is actually a dream of a single mind mm -hmm. that creates characters and each character has a viewpoint and that mind is uh, like almost has uh, multiple personalities. That, that was the one that made my, and I think that the, the, the graphic that you used is this, yeah, like I think exactly. you did. And that is the one where I went, oh, damn. Yeah. That's the, and that's when I contacted you was after- After seeing after that. After that one. And, and Bernardo makes a very compelling case for you know that, that actually solves a lot more thorny problems than a materialist mm -hmm. paradigm, which says, oh, everything is stuff and somehow mm, consciousness emerges magically from that. Uh, we don't know how, but we'll figure it out when we get smart enough. It's mm -hmm. like, well, or it's not possible, or you're right. And, and actually back to this alt-middle idea, this mm -hmm. idea of views. Right. So, okay, if the dream, well, is that real? Is the ants crawling on me real? Is mm -hmm. this real? Well, holding views in general then, starts to become a questionable vantage point. Like, how can you be so sure of anything really? Yeah. Um, and so why are we fighting over things that really are a matter of a difference of view? So your own particular morality, mm -hmm. your own conditioning, your own politics, your own of that emerges a certain view. Then you have the different view here. And are you really that sure? If you were molecule for molecule, that other person, mm -hmm. you would have the same view. And guess what? They think they're a good person. And as far in their internal state, they're good and you're the bad person mm -hmm. for holding your view. So maybe we need to really, yeah, as a storyteller, you know, you're inhabiting all the characters. The, the, the motive of the bad guy is not to be bad. <laughs> no, the bad guy thinks that the bad guy is the hero. I mean, thank you for, for drawing that back because I was like, oh, I, have the, I need to bring that back to the alt middle thing. <laughs> but the, the bottom, so the reason that that, that that thing came up about with me saying that there's no objective reality. I meant that on a very boring level, honestly, when I was talking to, to my, my kids about it. And it was, it was exactly this. It was like, if somebody is on the left politically and they are sure that the people on the right are, have it all wrong and that they're evil and that they're, the people on the right are thinking the exact same thing. And, and why, why is it that, that any one of us have allegiance to either one of those things? Because they are both, those are their realities. One of the, okay, so I guess I'm going to say my controversial thing because I think that this is illustrative is, um, so, I mean, 
beginning of 2000, uh, 2021, the, um, the Capitol was, you know, invaded, right? January 6th, I believe. And it was like this huge thing, like, oh my God, can you believe that this occurred? But what's so interesting to me as a storyteller is that if you get past your outrage, because by the way, I don't think this was a good thing. Like, let me just go right. on record there. I did a video at the time where I was, it, 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 I said it's a desecration. Yeah. And, and I was actually quite agnostic to different sides on it. I was just like, but, but seeing people in a place that is considered holy mm-hmm. in the United States by, by many, not everyone, right? Cause you're going to get to this probably, but, right. but yeah, it was, it was, it was, yeah, I had a reaction and I, in a video, I said, this is an absolute affront to everything that we stand for as Americans. It was destabilizing. Yeah. It was, but I actually, I think that that's really a really good point here is if you think about, it, if you were one of these people who like us was so destabilized and just, just bothered, like to shake into the core of you, think about if you've seen the Hunger Games, Right. Okay. So the Hunger Games is about a group of rebels who are standing up against the established power and invading, ironically, called the Capitol. Yeah. Like this, it's a it's a district instead of a building, but you're very much on Katniss and her friends' side. Right. And that's because the storytellers put you in, okay, it's an oppressed people yeah. who are fighting against a power rather than an established norm that is being invaded by hooligans. Right. And the people who did that, even if you have a huge problem with, with everything that they did, I think there's no question that they believed that they were the good guys. Yes. And they were standing up for what was right. Yes, absolutely. And that perspectival shift is what the alt middle is. It's being able to inhabit each perspective, but also being authentically you. So mm-hmm. the day I made that video, I was like, I was with everybody on the capital side going, geez, like this is a desecration of everything I was conditioned to believe mm-hmm. is central to American democracy. This is what made us what, you know, Reagan was calling the the the, the shining beacon on the hill or whatever, right? That, that, you know, it doesn't matter what your politics are. You're like, well, that's, America right there is we have representative representative democracy. But from the perspective of those guys, now what is reality? Reality is also created by a social media bubble that Mm -hmm. we find ourselves in, this sort of hive mind that emerges, all of us are part of, which we can talk about. It's actually quite Mm -hmm. interesting. It's almost a a demon that we instantiate with our collective group think. And they're influenced partially by that. So they, they see reality differently. They're good people. And they see this and they go, well, to do good, we have to go there. And they actually have points of reference that are backing this up. You have you know, the president saying yes and so on. And so now you have this tragedy where you have a, a woman shot to death, you have police officers dying and you have what was a bubble on social media, a reality, an alternative reality created there now entering what we consider reality, which in itself is all perspectival and, and chaos. Mm-hmm. And to this day, we're still arguing about the chaos. It's divisive. Everybody, they cannot understand like each other. Like what? Why would Republicans behave this way about this insurrection? Well, why would Democrats wanna politicize something that was this one thing or whatever the, the angles are? You, all the angles you start to see. And both of us have like family members that have different politics say than, mm-hmm. than us. And you very quickly start to come to recognize, wow, this is a good person who raised me. Like. Right. Like they must have a perspective here. They, yeah, it's a yeah. really interesting thing. I've done this a few times is um, is if you, you see somebody, because nowadays you, it feels like everybody's giving a heat, right? Everybody might as well be wearing uniforms, you know? Mm. 
uh, you wear one color if you're in this camp on this issue and wear another color. That's the way it feels. And it feels like you can, you almost know, okay, I better not talk about X with this person. Yeah, absolutely. But I've been in a situation where it's been clear that somebody is on another side to, than me on an important an issue that I consider important. And rather than reacting in the normal way, I'll, I'll try to uh, imagine how they step into their shoes for want mm -hmm. of a better term. And what you start to realize is, and this sounds so incredibly obvious to the point of just being insulting, but it's like, oh, they're just a person and they're intelligent. And it, like you said earlier, if I was in their shoes, I might feel the exact same thing. The world that we live in feels so right and wrong and black and white to us, but there's nothing, everything is arbitrary. Our, our, the way that we were raised is arbitrary. The way that the United States government or any other government has put up is arbitrary. Religions are arbitrary. And I don't mean that is like to, to crap on any of it. I just mean that there's nothing it, – it could have just as easily been another religion that right. became dominant in Europe instead of Christianity when it did. I would, I would be a follower of Zool. Zool, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm more of a gatekeeper than a key master, but I would definitely be a follower of Zool. There, there is no uh, Dana. There is only Zula. <laughs> yes, um, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that would be bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, such a great movie, by the way. Love it. Talk about storytelling. Yeah, um, it is. It's, it's, it's like you know, it's, it's a hero's journey for three people, mm -hmm. and the audience goes on a hero's journey. It's, it's really interesting. But so back, so mm -hmm. back, back to this alt middle stance, this idea of holding views so tightly. I think it is incompatible with being a creative and a storyteller in a way. Mm, I would agree. Right? You kind of need to inhabit different views. You need to be flexible mm -hmm. and somewhat open. And some people are born better with that. And some people are, are more, they, they, like, they, they hold their beliefs more tightly and it's more a part of their identity. Mm -hmm. And well, there's nothing wrong with anything you wanna do is fine. Yeah. The goal is like, how can we talk about ways to like be creative and to relieve suffering? Well. I think both of us kind of have this intuition that a flexibility in holding our beliefs. So, so you can have strong convictions, but hold them loosely, like be, be convincible, mm -hmm. or at least be able to inhabit another view and really viscerally understand it so that this hate and this division actually starts to dissolve more and we can actually talk again. I think that'd be important. Well, I mean, think think logically. Okay, so the, the 2000, um, 20 uh, presidential election, the popular vote was very, very close to 50-50. I mean, it was almost right down the middle. So no matter which side you were on, most people are like, oh my God, half of the country is crazy. Right. And if you stop and you think about that- How can okay, that even be? No, yeah, how can that no, even be? There's no way. Like, I, I know that during the election, like people that I knew on both sides were, were just, just you know, whining and moaning about how crazy this other side is. I don't believe that half the country is crazy. Yeah. Like, they, no, I'm not willing to write that off as like they just all made a mistake. On right. either side, it doesn't right. make sense. Right. These are these are these are again. We, what's happened is we're unable. So if 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 each side is like a hemisphere of the brain, we've cut that connection, the corpus callosum mm -hmm. that connects them. So sometimes when I think about alt middle, I think about it as a uh, as the corpus callosum. Mm. It's these fibrous tracks that provide the understanding the compassion and the empathy that understands each view and then still can have strong conviction. Because ultimately, how we behave in the world is a synthesis of those two hemispheres when the corpus callosum is intact. They hash it out, corpus callosum is largely inhibitory. It actually stops each hemisphere. Like the other hemisphere saying, okay, I got it, bro, here. Mm -hmm. Let that me, let me talk this time, right? What's that? You don't have the full story. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You don't have the full story, here, here it is. And they take, they kind of 
compete for whatever the truth is going to be. And that changes and it varies and it depends on what's going on right now. The sum total of every electrical impulse in the brain and every conditioning and every piece of, you know, thing that we've been exposed to, what we had for breakfast and everything. And what we've done is we've created these electronic silos where we've cut the corpus callosum, we've demonized. Now we're two independent entities that don't connect, don't understand each other and see each other as evil. Mm -hmm. And this happens in a in a collective way that's instantiated by this neuron of social media, mm. where it's like, dislike, um, that's our neurotransmitter. And we've auto aggregate into these tribes. And, and BJ Campbell has written about this, um, uh, he calls them egregores, which is an old occult term. It's a demon that is is created when people get together and try to, to focus on one thing. And so what's the demon? The demon is the hive mind of you know, the right, the hive mind of the left. Those are instantiated by CNN, MSNBC, and then Fox, Breitbart, and, and then everybody who just auto goes where their kind of tendency is, turns off the conscious thinking and just becomes part of this thing. And it pushes down on us in our own behavior. So we feel like the other side's crazy. We can't talk to people. And then we in, unconsciously instantiate up and create this demon. And when you don't see it, when you don't have the meta awareness to see that story, cause it's a story, mm -hmm. it's not a physical thing. Um, bad things happen like January 6th. Yep. Yeah, I, I have a friend who um, he was saying that he he objected to real stories that were m fictionalized. So if you have something that actually happens and mm. they make a movie about it, because mm. he's like, well, they, they that isn't really what happened. It's not it's not an expose. It's not a journalistic thing. It's it's fiction. Liberties were taken. And my reaction was, dude, you don't think that. Everything is informational manipulation, yeah. and I don't mean that in a conspiracy theory. Yeah, no, way. just reality. It's just it's you, the, the 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 beliefs that you hold most dear are arbitrary. They were created by the things that you ran into as as a child growing up, by the parents you happen to have, by your influences at school. There's nothing special about what any of us believe. In fact, <clears throat> part of Angelo's whole uh, he has a whole chapter on belief, mm. and part of the awakening process and spirituality in general, uh, secular spirituality he's talking about, is investigating the nature of your deepest held beliefs. So for example, if you have a thought that says, I'm a good person, um, that's an unexamined thought. In other words, you take that thought to be true. First mm -hmm. of all, what are all the beliefs that orbit around that thought that arises? Okay. First of all, that there's an I having the thought, I am a good person. Mm -hmm. That an I exists that is thinking that somehow voluntarily. That the um, I is separate from everything else around it. That the um, I has a moral uh, sense of good and bad. That the I exists in space and time so that it, I am a good person, meaning I've done things in the past that make me a good person Which now. messes up the logic because if space and time isn't linear, then if and then doesn't make sense. Doesn't even make sense. So you can investigate deeper and deeper and deeper, and then you can get to the, to, to the root of that belief by actually continuing to question. And when mm -hmm. you do that, it can be very destabilizing because we actually form identity around belief. We form identity around, oh, I'm a doctor, I'm a, you're, a, you're an author, I, uh, you know, I'm a father. And when you really start to investigate, you can realize, oh, well, if you can really question even your most fundamental beliefs, and you can, then 
when you talk about unearthing a story or opening a hole and getting letting the creativity come and whatever's there is there, how is that unbelievable? How is that somehow metaphysical or, or illogical? Like, right. yeah, it's just as real as anything else because you can question belief down to the core. Well, we give some. I mean, I'm a, I'm a you know I'm a scientist at core, and, and I have. Me too. I, I usually get very frustrated when people do things that feel anti-science. I'm just yeah. like, come on, this science is involved. But that said, there is a logical limit to that for me, which is science believes that if we can't see it, touch it, feel it, taste it, then then it, it must not exist. And that doesn't follow for me necessarily. Um, the idea that these five senses that we have in our head are tell us the whole of the world just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, imagine what it's like to be a dog. Imagine what it's like to be a bat. You know, imagine what's like to be somebody who grew up nowhere near you, but is has synesthesia or something like that. Yeah. You know, the, the, I just keep coming back to the arbitrary nature of everything and how, how we can so roundly dismiss. I mean, I feel like I'm getting a little maybe too deep here. I don't know. But um, we're not high. That's the problem. No, we're not. I yeah. mean, we really need some of that blue math. Yeah, the blue math. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where's that guy? Yeah, exactly. No, but it, it gets it gets to the question of, again, if, if, if we're, you know, Hoffman's theory that stuff isn't made of things, it's actually all consciousness interacting with itself. And each species has a species specific interface with how it uh, interacts with the world. So I see you as a human with certain features because Mm -hmm. evolutionarily competing with other conscious agents in this matrix of social network of conscious agents, um, that will help me survive to know, okay, you're this tall, you look threatening or not. I can read your facial expressions. I get a somewhat of a sense of what your internal state is, but it's not perfect, Mm -hmm. but it's better than the sense I get of an internal state of a nematode worm. I can look at a worm and I have no effing clue what that worm's internal state is like, but I'm pretty sure it has an internal state. And I can't prove that, but if you assume that everything is uh, kind of awake to some degree, like a dog, we're pretty sure a dog has an internal state. You can kind of see its emotions. Mm -hmm. You can get a theory of mind with a dog. At what point does that, go to zero. Well, the truth is what Hoffman says is, you know, when you're looking at a rock, what are you looking at? You know, you're seeing an icon, what's it representing? Well, I love some of the stuff that came from, I think it was Kastrup who broke it down by, he said, I, I think the good pressure test for any theory is what are the logical followings from it? Yeah. And he said something like, it was, I think you were talking about panpsychism. Right. And he said, well, the problem with panpsychism is that where does it, it leads to several conclusions. So if a rock falls, on the ground and it breaks into two, did we create a, create a consciousness? consciousness? Right. Or was it always, the, you know, like it It becomes a slippery slope with that sort of it stuff. It becomes a little bit of madness. Yeah. So the way Hoffman would solve that problem is he'd say, no, the rock itself isn't necessarily conscious. It is an icon that we perceive in, it's, it's part of reality. Mm-hmm. So it's pointing at something. We see it as rock. What it actually is, we can't, grasp with our interface. Mm-hmm. So it could be, who knows? You know, It could be a different type of conscious agent that is aware in a certain way and we see it as rock. Breaking into two rocks, it doesn't make a difference because it exists outside of space and time. It's just that our interface involves space in three dimensions and time. But the rock, like a hummingbird. So this morning I was sitting outside. This is just, we're off the rails, but let's just go with it. The, <laughs> this morning I was sitting outside, I'd, I'd meditated for two hours in the morning because I got up at four. So I was in a particular headspace where I was quite open and very present, which means you, you're, when a sound happens, it is coming out of emptiness and it is just the sound. There's no listener to the sound. It's just sound sounding. Mm-hmm. It exists. It exists and it's happening now and then it's gone. 
It's coming out of nothing, it's going into nothing. And so I'm sitting outside and that's happening. And a, and a hummingbird uh, is on a branch and it goes, it does that thing that hummingbirds do. I've never heard a hummingbird do that, but I'm gonna take you on faith. It, it is, it's, okay. <laughs> it's a high pitch. If you ever saw that episode of Star Trek where they, the old series where they were, were dealing with an alien species that had lived in a sped up time. Oh, no, I haven't seen that. Uh, so to humans, it sounds like, mm. and they don't see anything, but they take some pill or they get bitten or something and, and they speed up and it wrecks their metabolism and so on, but they're able to see this world and all the humans look like this. Mm. They're all just frozen. Mm -hmm. And um, when I listened to this hummingbird this morning, it does this thing, it's this high pitched thing, but it has a lot of nuance in it when you're paying very close attention. And I'm like, that motherfucker is talking to other hummingbirds. And it is at a speed where the other hummingbirds, it sounds something like this. Mm -hmm. But to a hummingbird that lives in a world of an interface where time is a different dilation, like this thing is having a rich internal life. Like I was convinced. Now I could be totally off. There's no way to know. But what if it's true? How do you live your life? How do you see the world? How do you see possibility? How do you experience nature? How do you experience other humans? How do you experience animals? Are you going to uh, condone cruelty of any kind when you know these things can suffer? So it changes how we are, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I actually, I'm curious. So with, with those sorts of videos, do you ever get, because I think there's a logical consequence that can be drawn, doesn't need to be drawn, but can be drawn, that says something like this. Oh, well, if it's all an interface, and I know that we need to take those icons seriously, even if we don't take them literally, from Hoffman, there's an aspect that is like, it kind of doesn't all matter. Yeah. So do you get, because I feel like that, that could be alarmist to some people. They'd be like, wait a minute, everything doesn't matter. Do you, do you get any pushback on that? Yeah, so this is the nihilistic sort of approach to even spirituality, like on, on the deepest level, everything can be experienced as pure open possibility of emptiness, just mm -hmm. emptiness manifesting reality and disappearing. There's nothing permanent, nothing to grasp. It's all happening and disappearing. And as Angela says in his book, in one of the spookiest chapters, spooky meaning it can be destabilizing uh, because he points progressively to stages of realization. Like, oh, you start out thinking you're a separate self and you know, you're know you like going along and I'm a self, but you feel kind of empty because you're always fighting and you're always, mm -hmm. and then you realize, oh no, oh, oh, I'm expansive consciousness. I'm everything that's awake and aware. I'm the awareness that everything happens in. But then even beyond that, you start to go, well, wait, what am I reflecting as consciousness? And then you realize even that sense of self drops away and there's no self at all. And it's just radiant phenomenon coming out of nothing, going into nothing. And we're just constructing a world in our interface of that. And that is just, it's totally impermanent. There's nothing to grasp. Mm -hmm. And uh, 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 so nothing matters. Go out, shoot up a school, uh, leave your wife, kids, none of it matters. No, because the truth is, and this is the paradox, and th this is the paradox of everything, a story. That may be true. That may be an aspect of reality. Mm -hmm. and there's no view. It's all just indeterminate. It's all, and, and quantum mechanics bears this out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nothing exists until you actually perceive it. Um, at the same time, this, you and I here in this interface with our kids, with romantic love, personal love, with our own egos, that's all absolutely real too, mm -hmm. in the sense that it's experienced right now. Both can be true. You can have the liberation of knowing that none of this is really real and the grounding embodiment of living as a human with that 
sense while still actually living a human life of caring for others, loving others unconditionally, all those other things. That's where I think this this dichotomy, that's a very left brain thing mm -hmm. is seeing the world in the black and white dichotomy wall. It's either all real meaning or it's all fake and it's nihilism. I don't think it's that's both. true. It's both. Yeah. yeah, I mean, cause I think it's very freeing to think of um, life as one of the best metaphor that I heard from Hoffman, he gave a bunch and it was kind of like a choose your own Pick which metaphor works best for you, right? Yeah. And the one that that, that I liked best was imagine you're playing Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. You know, life is a game of Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. And so there's something really freeing there because he also talked in that same interview that he did with him and that at the he's you know you guys were talking about what is death. And yeah. He has that that comparison of like well. I, you know, and he's really gracious in this way. Like, well, I don't know if I'm right. I don't yeah, know if I'm right. Yeah. I'm just going to say. He's a super humble guy. Yeah. And, and I love that because yeah. it's so much better than like, let me tell you how it is. Yeah. But he said, you know, imagine you're wearing a VR headset and, you know, you take it off to go somewhere and your avatar collapses to the ground. And what if it's like that? What if you just exited the simulation? Yeah. And I mean, I like that. There's something very comforting about that. But but look at the metaphor for me is Ready Player One. See, yeah. You know, and, and like- they really, really didn't want to die in the game yeah. because then they've lost this, all their life's work. You know, they build up, they had all this stuff. You lose all your stuff when you die in the game. So like, yeah, I don't want to lose this game. I want to play this game well, but I'm still, I still feel like maybe it's a game. Dude. So the ready player one analogy is really, actually, I never thought of that. This idea that the game of life, like, so there's something that happens that points right at this. Mm -hmm. uh, in in sort of during the the path of realization, and again, I, I talk like I know what I'm talking about. I've only touched into these things. Angela speaks very clearly yeah. about this, but you can only experience it. You can't really, and I have no business talk, trying to teach it because I just I'm not I'm just not there. There's a grieving process that happens for the self mm -hmm. that you've built in the game. So. I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a this. Now, if you come from a traumatic background, he said this in, the, in a show that we haven't, I don't know if we've released it yet. If you come from a trauma background where your life is a mess, you're destabilized, you're living on the street, or you're just you're in, in and out of jail or whatever it is, you in this video game have very little to lose. People like that who undergo this spiritual path wake up really quick. Mm. They're like, yeah, get me out of the, unplug me from this matrix because this shit sucks. <laughs> and and I'm totally down with everything being open emptiness. That's cool. I like that. Mm -hmm. It's better than this, right? They wake up quick. It's the folks that have the career, the story, the identity, the success mm, that yeah. struggle and grieve. So there was um, one of our supporters who was at our meditation retreat. She r runs a gym. I've told this story before. She run, ran, ran a gym and all her life, she's been into fitness and helping other people get fit and so on. And there've been a lot of changes in her life. She comes to this thing and she she told me at, towards like day five or something where we were very like open and like, you know, we de-identified from thought and everything's unstable. And she's, you know, she's like tearful and she's telling me, she's like, like I'm grieving for this person inside me that I'd built for like all these years that had been all about like helping people get fit and being fit. And now I'm, you know, I'm getting older and the business is changing. And then I'm realizing my identity is not even this thing that I thought it was like, I'm letting it go and it hurts so much. And I was like, oh my God, I can feel that. You know, mm. this story like this, like you said in Ready Player One, like all this stuff, all the MacGuffins that we've right. got and <laughs> all the cool <laughs> stuff that we've got, like to let it go. Like, and, and the truth is you don't have to, you have to be willing to, you have to be willing to say, 
this is all, that's okay, it can go. But then when you come back, like there's a saying in Zen, you come back, you come back and you sit in the ashes, meaning you re-inhabit your body and you're, all you can do is be a beneficial force in the world mm -hmm. and really embody it. But that's there, that's on offer. I, I think that, I, I think you can do both. I mean, yeah. if you, if, if, I mean, I really dislike uh, the Elon Musk style life as a simulation. What you know, I agree because it's a thousand like, percent. You know what? It strikes me as arrogant. It's arrogant and it's left brain reductionism again. It's like, oh, it's all just a simulation. Uh, and and, and yeah. humans clearly are awesome. So clearly, we just plugged you into it. Like, no, it's <laughs> no, I don't buy that. It's, yeah, where I think we're in the matrix, but not like that. Not like, like that. No, in a different way. And we're in God's matrix. <laughs> yeah, we're, 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 we're in a spiritual. Yeah. I mean, I like I like Hastrup's idea of we're all alters experiencing a shared dream. Yeah. But I don't think that that negates the 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 mortal plane. Like, why why would it? I mean, yeah. if you're playing Grand Theft Auto and it's a really great game and you really love Grand Theft Auto, if it's like a hundred x of what it is for most people, or a million x, even if you know it's a game, you don't want to lose it. Nope. You know, you don't want to do things in the game that are ridiculous. No, I think that that metaphor extends to you can have both. We're here to play the game, and then when we're done, who knows? Maybe we play a game again. I don't know. There's a there's a story in Buddhism that I don't know if you watch Rick and Morty at all. Yes. Yeah. So there's that episode where they play that video game. They, yes, I yeah. love that one. And and it's the video game of life. And <laughs> mm -hmm. so Morty plugs in and he starts playing, and he's a guy, <laughs> and he goes through his life, and he starts selling carpets at the carpet store, and he gets married, and then he gets cancer. All his friends <laughs> come, and he, he survives cancer. He goes back to the carpet store. He's climbing a ladder. He's old. He falls. He breaks his neck. Game over. And Morty. As the game ends, he's like, ah! Like he's back in the real world. For him, that was an entire lifetime. And Rick is there and he's like, yeah, Morty, the key thing is you, you, you never go back to the carpet store. You totally fuck that up. You never go back. And I tell you, when I watch that, I'm like, holy shit. Like that's this, what this is like. And there's a story in Buddhism where Buddha's walking with his boy. I forget the guy's name. And uh, is one of his like disciples. And he's like, hey, uh, I'm kind of thirsty. Can you go into one of those uh, houses and because the guy had asked him a question about like why is, is this an illusion like what is this and uh, Buddha goes go, go get me some water so he goes he goes to a house the guy opens the house opens the door there's a beautiful girl sitting in a chair and the mom who's older comes out and she's like oh and the guy the disciple of Buddha falls in love with this girl he's like, wow she's so beautiful and the, and the mom goes you know you should marry her you look like a healthy guy like come on in so he comes in he gets distracted ends up marrying this girl has this life ends up getting a business like paying taxes, doing all this stuff, has kids, all this. Then this big hurricane comes and the village starts to get flooded and he gets his kids and his wife up on the roof and they're hanging onto a clothesline. And one by one, like his kids get carried away. Like, oh my God, there goes my daughter. Mm. And well, at least I have a son. No, the son gets taken away. And then the, the whole business gets flooded and the whole town's gone. And then his wife is gone. And at this point he's like, there's nothing left for me. I don't even know what to do. He lets go. And as soon as he lets go, there he is with Buddha. And he, he's like, he's got the glass of water. And Buddha's like, you see now what I'm talking about? And, <laughs> and he's just like, fuck. And, and in a way, that doesn't mean you don't take this seriously, mm -hmm. right? It's exactly what, what, what Hoffman says. You take it seriously, you may not take it literally, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's mutually exclusive at all. I mean, yeah. it, just, it just seems to me that you should be able to do both. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because it, to me, it ties back to the story solution stuff. Because, yeah, you don't go back to the furniture store. Well, okay, so if I may extend back to our previous session, that's failing to answer the call to, the call to, to adventure. Call to adventure. You know, that's the, that's the first act 
of you know Morty in his in his in his <laughs> simulation had you know an inciting incident which was the cancer and then he had an act one climax which was I guess if we're depending on how we're you know interpreting this then surviving the cancer was maybe that was his act one and he could have done something else with his life because he had his wake up call but then he went back to the fucking furniture store <laughs> you know I think that that the, the, the the choices that we're making are story based. What story do you want to tell? Yeah. And that was a little story inside that game of a guy who worked at a furniture store. Yeah. Imagine though, com- coming out of that story, mm-hmm. a lifetime and just being like, oh, it was a simulation. I mean- Inception did the same thing. Inception deal, did the yeah. same thing. In fact, it's an archetype in storytelling. The Matrix, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, There's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where he lived a- In the hol- holodeck, uh, right? Or was it, it was a, a It was a probe. Oh. And it showed him his whole li- like his whole life if he had lived on that planet. Oh wow! Because they were like preserving their past. I in see the probe. It was pretty cool. I think I remember this. Yeah, yeah. It was called. Oh my god! Um, so I do know the name, but I'm just pausing for a second to reflect that I'm what a geek I am. But I, <laughs> it's called the Inner Light. Is the name of the episode. It's not even one of my favorites. But I'm with I, you. I'm yeah. with you. The holodeck was an interesting construct mm-hmm. in in Star Trek because it, it allowed so many story tropes to happen. In fact, it was a trope, don't you think? The holodeck, oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely, a, a, a sci-fi kind mm-hmm. of trope that they really popularized. Um, but yeah, the idea, like the Matrix, for me was like revealed truth in many ways because it had the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. You know, you had Neo. Yeah, he's realized something wrong with the world. He has this dis, this discomfort. It starts to manifest in people around him. He's seeing because he's open to this, what we talked about, this return on luck, right? This idea that serendipity isn't necessarily serendipity. It's just the universe showing you stuff mm-hmm. and you either choose to listen or you don't. You choose to excavate the skeleton or you choose to just keep it covered or to go in a different way. And, and maybe I'll dig over here instead. And it shows him this and then he gets an opportunity well, you can either see deeper or you can continue to live in that illusion. And he mm-hmm. makes a very fateful choice, which wasn't his choice. It's just exactly how it was gonna happen in that moment. And then it just gets, again, everything about it is a kind of an archetypal story of this illusion, the grand, what the Buddhists call Maya, the grand illusion that, mm-hmm. that oh, you know, when you dig into it, so who are these agents? Well, they're agents of the ego. They're the ego trying to, get you trapped back into thought, back into the illusion. And they know all your paths. They know every exit. They're in the matrix with you. They know you better than they know, you know yourself. And so it's very easy for this operating system to catch you. And the only way is to see clearly. So sometimes you need a teacher like Morpheus. Sometimes you need distance, getting out of the matrix to see the matrix. And that that second, so the first awakening is Neo unplugs and he realizes, oh, it's an illusion. Well, that's one step. But the second awakening <laughs> is the hardest. It's when he dies at the end of the movie. Again, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. he gets shot by his own ego, actually. Delusion. And he dies. He allows, he surrenders. And he comes back because of love, this unconditional love with Trinity. And when he comes back, there's no self that comes back. It is just this. He sees the matrix for what it is, which is it's me and has unlimited power at that point. And then it's such a powerful, and that's where story, like how did they unearth that story? Yeah. Well, it, what's interesting, I, I don't wanna go too much into this cause it's so new, Yeah. but the new Matrix movie yeah, is like that. the king of meta storytelling. It, it's, if you watch that, if you read what happened, like in the real world, prelude to that movie, like with the story that m- resulted in that being made. And then if you imagine Neo as Lana Wachowski, 
Wow. And you you just imagine her sitting there instead of Neo. It's like, oh my God, this there movie. It is. Yeah. There it is. It's kind of nuts. I actually really, you know, it's weird. I The second half of the movie that was all, you know, the, the action and all that, I wasn't that into. But the first half, I was like, wow, this is like a meta within a meta. And it's so... It was really impressive. I was it's like, a middle finger to Warner Brothers too, it, which is a funny thing. It, it directly, mm -hmm. directly. It was mm -hmm. great. And you know, the idea that he's a video game designer and they turned this whole thing into a video game and you know, his all the bros that are like trying to like get him to do stuff are just they're programs, they're agents. Yeah, and and, yeah. and Lana's basically saying, like, this is what I did. Yeah. Like I'm trying to I'm trying to tell an inner truth and this is what I created in the world. Amazing, right? Amazing. Yeah. I love it. It is that you know. Again, the power of story mm -hmm. to reveal a truth in yourself and have you see it. You know, it's weird because when I saw that, when that new Matrix came out, there's a scene where Morpheus uh, is relaying in a flashback how he kind of got connected to yeah, Neo. Yeah, I remember that. Remember mm -hmm. that? He's in his, he's like shaving, he's shirtless in his bathroom mm -hmm. and he starts seeing the mirror and the mirror starts streaming that Matrix code. Mm -hmm. Dude, I, I swear to God, like when you meditate on certain like Zen koans, like Mu, this idea that it's a long story, reality starts to look like that. Like you start to see Mu everywhere and Mu is just this veneer of, of, of a form floating on just pure possibility. It's, it's it, you can't talk about no, it. No, I, I can relate to that because I, I feel like over the past few years and, and listening to all your guests has probably had a lot of, a lot to do with this. I keep getting glimpses. Yeah. And I'm like, Fortastes. how do I get that back? And I can't control when they come. I can't control how long, but there's, there are moments where I'm like, oh, I understand this now. And then in the morning, I, I usually can't remember, but I remember that it was there. I remember that I was convinced. It doesn't feel like a flight of fancy. I just feel like, or there are things that Angela will say, like he's really good at saying something. And I go, oh, that does feel, that feels like a relief what you just said, Dude. whatever that was. So what you're describing is those are, those are mini, little mini awakenings where you're seeing actually what, how things are. Mm. And it's a grace, like you're given this grace. Like you said, you can't control it. You can put yourself in the way of it. Like, and, and you have no control over it. You're like, oh, you're, I'm just drawn to watch these videos. Or, or you sit down and you're like, I'm gonna figure that out right now. No, that doesn't work. Does not work. In fact, <laughs> this, is, this, this is fascinating to me because I'm in, I'm in the boat with you, right? Yeah. You, I, I'll get these incredibly profound. So when Angela was here, we would go sit on a park bench and he would just start talking about reality and he would be pointing from that space. Like he inhabits that space because he's done this. I mean, he woke up in 94 or something, 97, yeah. and has been on this path and is, you know, as liberated an individual as I have met. There, I'm sure there's, you know, gradations of that, but he's pointing directly at like, this is what things are like. And there I am right there with him experiencing it. Oh my God, that's how reality is. And I remember I turned to him and I said, this is terrifying and also un fucking leaveable, oh, yeah. Lee awesome, like mm -hmm. both. And within 30 seconds, the conditioned mind comes back. It's almost like those agents in the matrix, they're like, 
he's going to wake up. Right, right. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Because they know you better than you know yourself. It immediately goes, oh, dude, you got to remember how to get back to this. You need to put yourself in the exact situation. You're going to forget this. And it's telling you stories and you get caught on the thought train. And the next thing you know, you're back in identity and belief. And then you are telling the story of the one who lost awakening. Mm, Yeah. It's routine. In fact, and and what's great is Angelo's good at pointing it out by text. So I'll text him and I'll be like, dude, I had this thing with Moo. Everything was Moo. It was like totally move. And then I lost it, bro. Like, how do I get it back? And he's like, listen to yourself. Who is it that's trying to get it back? This is very sticky with identity. Oh yeah. Identity mm-hmm. tells a story. It knows you better than it knows you. It's like, oh, oh, you had a real experience. You touched unfiltered reality. And then the mind is like, I want to own that. I want to control that. That's something that I now possess. But that's all illusion. That's all software. <laughs> but we're so used to being trapped in it. Yeah, the, 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 the times that the, I want to say two or three different times. And it was like, all I remember is relief. I just remember going, or, or awesome. Like, oh, like, yeah. oh, that's awesome. Like, it was just like, oh, I don't need to worry about, I don't even remember anymore, right? Like you, you experience Ineffable. them in the moment. Ineffable. Yeah, and I remember feeling like, oh, I, I'm covered. Like whatever I was worrying about in the moment, I don't need to worry about anymore. But an interesting exercise that I've tried, and, and I can only do it successfully every once in a while, is trying to be so now focused that you don't remember anything. It's a weird thing because you're using your mind against your mind. And you're trying to like, you try to not remember who you are or where you are. You just kind of try to exist. That makes any sense? I'm doing it right now. Right? So that, what you just- Just this moment. Weird, right? What you just pointed at is, it's funny because Angela has this in his book. I, I, I've talked to him about it. It's called, I call it the just stop. Mm. And what it means is, You've just vaporized here, wide awake. You have no past, no future, no story, no nothing, go. And you can only, because the mind will come back very fast, but when it doesn't, when you first do it, it's it's like being a newborn. Like Mm -hmm. what is a newborn has no, it's just sensation and oceanic awareness. It's everything that's just happening. And it's absolute bliss and relief. And and, and meditation in many ways, remember I, I talked about that, Shikantaza style of meditation. I don't know if it was in the last episode or this one now. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't even matter. I'm in the moment. I, I, me too, I have no yeah. past or future. Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> and and it is, it's sitting here and dropping everything and just going, just going, just being. And it's deceptively hard to do because we're so conditioned to get lost in thought, to get lost in the story. And in fact, one of the prerequisites of it is just whatever happens, happens and don't even judge it. So if you if you do have thoughts, let them be but don't try to push them away. Don't try to judge them. Don't try to do anything. It's deceptively hard. That's why in Zen, it's actually not the first meditation that's given to people because it's so difficult for people who aren't somewhat versed in it. You know, they start with follow the breath, pay attention yeah. dualistically, subject object to the breath and so on. So that's a great pointer that what you're doing is like absolutely correct. Hmm. And there's some people that can just drop right into it. For me, it happened once when I was, I told the story on, the, on a show with him. I was like reading Angelo's book on the, uh, it was a chapter on self-inquiry or something. And he's like, sometimes you just, you've hit a wall and the intellect is just, it's just like, I don't even know what to do now. And at that point, try this, just stop. Stop pretending, stop faking it, mm-hmm. stop thinking, stop this. And I'm reading it, stop, 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 stop. <laughs> and everything stopped and what this is what was left and i'm putting into words something that's ineffable mm-hmm. right? so i'm going to channel it as best i can everything that was happening 
was this veneer of radiant experience that was radiating from nothing perfectly. Like it was orchestrated. It was absolutely perfect and it was happening only now and there was no me. So that was the most remarkable thing. Mm. It wasn't happening yeah, to nice. anyone. It was self-radiant, self-experiencing. And I don't know how long that lasted. It must've just been seconds, but I knew right then I was like, it's instinctive, right? You're like that. That's that what everyone's it. looking for. That's liberation. Has he, yeah. Have you guys talked about psychedelics at all? Because, so, yeah. Yeah, great, great, great question. Yeah. It's I'll interview you now. Oh, good, no, yeah. do it. Because <laughs> this, is, this is a conversation. So psychedelics, Angelo, they were never a part of his process. Suffering was his impetus. For me, yeah, I've done psychedelics. And he, I'm so glad you asked that question because there's such a double-edged sword because they can show you they can open you to these experiences. You can actually have these peak mystical experiences, but you don't necessarily have the container for it. So if you mess around with them when you're young, like most of us did, at least I did, you 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 can have these experiences and they're, they're almost life altering experiences, but you don't have a container. So you think, oh man, it was just a drug experience yeah. or whatever. And, and so when I had that experience of, that I just described of that liberating, like non-dual, like everything is just happening and there's no self, the reason I knew instinctively that it was right was it felt exactly like it reminded me and I hadn't felt this way of what it was like doing you know, psilocybin or LSD mm -hmm. as a youth. I was like, oh, that's, that, th there was an aspect of it clouded with all this other garbage and it felt so correct. I was like, oh my God, I never knew at the time that that's what that was, that you're seeing unfiltered reality to some degree. You said it's a double-edged sword, so what's the downside? I think the downside is uh, you never know what's gonna happen, set and setting, where your mindset going in, who's with you, your guide and all that, the dosing. Um, it's like, Sam Harris makes a great analogy of this. He says, doing a psychedelic is like strapping yourself to a rocket. You know you're gonna go somewhere, you don't know where it is. Oh. It could be terrible. It could be hell. It could be amazing. It could be destabilizing. You don't know. Meditation is getting in a boat and slowly hoisting a sail. You don't know if you're ever gonna get to the other shore. Like it's hard. Mm. You'll get experiences along the but way. It's more controlled. But it's controlled and it's believable in a way that sometimes psychedelics may not be because you can come back and then the mind tells the story. You were on a drug. That wasn't real and starts telling stories. And that often happens. People repackage their experience. Michael Pollan in his book, How, How to, to Change, Change Your Mind. Mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He he did this. So he did all these different psychedelics, had never done them really until he was writing the book. And he's in yeah. his like 60s. And he has, describes these incredible experiences, these life-changing experiences. And then at the end, the last chapter, he's like, but you know, in the end, it's kind of hard to know what was real, what wasn't, how much is durable. I mean, it's interesting, we should definitely study it. You already see his mind, his ego coming back and packaging it as a story. Like, well, these were drug experiences. So that's the danger there. And if you are if you have a tendency to mental illness, if you have, you know, these are, you know, these are not, they can, they can be terrorizing. You know, that was the last thing I remember about the why I stopped ever doing any of that. It's like, you have one bad trip because you are you don't know what you're doing. You're you know 20 something where you, your whole ego structure is destabilized and you're done for good. You're just like, never again. No, can't, yeah. can't handle it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but the idea of any sort of, and, and it's not like I'm some crazy psychonaut or anything. So I'm speaking out my ass on some of this, <laughs> but it just seems to me that any sort of altered state 
is the same argument as the dream or anything yeah. else. Like what my problem. So the, I think that there are two ways to view what is real. And the, the way that people usually use it is they're using a definition of real that it has parameters. You know, again, it's touch, feel, taste. It, it's it's agreed upon. But if you think about it, even the the rules by which we decide whether something is quote unquote real, what is the proof that something is real? Again, arbitrary. Hmm. And I don't, I guess I don't see why. The other definition of real is if you experience it, then it is real for you by definition. Hmm. And I don't, again, I have to go back to, I, I literally don't see what the difference would be because what standard is there? This is the only place you can live is inside your, I mean, right now in human form mm. is inside your head. Yeah. It's the only way you can live. So to say that, oh, well, I experienced this, but it's not real to me is a contradiction. Yeah. Like, no, it was real because you experienced it. Yeah. Dumbledore said it, right? He said, Harry said, I don't know. Is this all just in my head? And he goes, well, of course it's all in your head, but that doesn't make it any less real. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So I think psychedelics can be a tool, especially with integration. I think they give people a glimpse into, into unfiltered reality. Mm -hmm. And many people will have these experiences and they don't have a container for it. They, they're just like, oh, I had this experience on acid or on psilocybin when I was a kid, younger, and I, I never really knew what it was. But now later in life, I'm doing meditation or whatever, or maybe they've done an ayahuasca journey or they've done something else that reintroduced that and they're feeling the call because they're suffering mm -hmm. or they're feeling that emptiness you know, um, of like accomplishment. Like, oh, I did everything I was supposed to do. Like I'm winning the game. Right. Like, I, I, I got all the like extra credit. Like I'm in the top 10 high yeah. scores. Mm, why am I still unhappy? Yeah, and then there's all the emotion component that's repressed, like the shame of that and all these other components. Emotion is such a key thing. You know, it, it drives so much good storytelling and yet we're conditioned to repress our own emotion all the time, to tell stories about it, have beliefs about it. So, you know, there's an interesting thing. You talk about emotion. This isn't exactly the same thing, but sensation. Yeah. So um, I was on the plane, you know, I flew in this morning and I got up really early. And so I was trying to sleep on the plane. And so, you know, I put on an eye shade and had one of those big neck pillows. And it was actually strangely like cocoony because yeah. I had the mask on and I felt like I was in my little cocoon. But, you know, of course <laughs> you start to, well, something itches or my eye is watering and, you know, you get comfortable and then you have to scratch something. And so I'm like, well, no, I'm kind of in a quasi meditative state. It's really hard to sleep on a plane. So why don't I just kind of as good as sleep, right? Go into kind of meditative state. And so you start feeling something and you, and I would just resist it. And I'd be like, and, and, and then I started to think about it. And I thought, why is it, this is a sensation. It's activation of certain nerves. Why is it that we call that bad? Yeah. And why are there other ones that we call good? <clears throat> mm -hmm. Doesn't that seem arbitrary too? Because if you get down to the naked sensation and you go, okay, it's a disturbance of something that I can't say I need to scratch. That's not a sensation. That's a something that I'm doing up in my brain. So why is it that certain sensations or certain emotions are bad or good. That's an intellectualization. Oh, sadness. Well, I don't want sadness. Why? Why? What is it inherently that's bad about sadness? It's it's impossible to quantify. Dude, so you're you're striking at the heart of the first perceptual filter, I think, that happens in our minds. Is this good or bad? Do I want this or not want this? Yeah. Desire aversion. Like, and it the mind evolved probably to do that. Because again, in our interface, certain things are better and worse, right? Like you you seek pleasure, you avoid pain. That's a way you're gonna reproduce, you're gonna have food, you're gonna have the best stuff and all that. So in this manifestation, those distinctions have some superficial helpfulness. But 
in an absolute sense, in, in a sense of like pure experience, actually the opposite is true. They're all just experience. And in fact, this, this is a practice. So you're in a meditation retreat, you're day five, your neck is starting to hurt. And this happened to me. And I'm like, okay, so I'm, I'm there on the chair, I'm meditating and I feel that neck pain. And I know, like I got a million stories about this neck pain because this neck pain started three years ago because I had tech neck because I was always looking at my stupid phone and then my posture was bad. And then I was worried that it's just gonna, I'm, now I'm the chronic pain guy with the neck pain and what am I gonna do? And now I have to do this and then I have to sit a certain way, I have to change all my area. So story, 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 belief, story, aversion, bad, pain, bad, no, not good, permanently damaged, identity, all that. So it arises in meditation. I'm surprised it took so many days because usually that'll happen early on. And I'm like, oh, the pain is back. And the thought arose. Now at this point I've cultivated so much presence. The, the snowballing of concentration that happens on, on retreat is un, it's undescribably awesome. And it, it's fed by the other people around you who have the same thing happening. It's like this collective thing happens. Very hard to describe. We did a show on it, we'll, we'll release soon. And um, I'm like, oh, thought just arose. This is bad. This energy pattern in my neck is bad. Let me just feel into what this is without the label. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have a belief around that. Let me examine that belief. Okay, keep going. What's the sensation? It's this, it's this vibrating thing. Pretty soon, that vibrating energy that, that I was categorizing as pain, unpleasant, becomes this vibration that's my entire existence, like the whole universe is this vibrating energy. And it's ecstatic. Like it's a kind of bliss. And I was like, what the fuck? And then it was gone. It just evaporated. So what does it tell you? Like open yourself, surrender. I've been saying, give me all you got. Like that's what I started oh, I doing. That. I was yeah. like, I was like, oh, so that itches? Okay, itch. Let's see how that. bad it can get. I love that. And and it's interesting. It's almost like you call it's bluff. And it goes, <laughs> it goes, oh, I'm not actually interested. I just want to mess with you. Dude, you know what? You want to really try this out. Try it at the dentist. Ooh. Yeah. So this happened to me. I'd come back from retreat and it was like a few days. And I told Angela this story, I might've said it on the show. So my dentist was like, dude, like maybe we should, um, you know, you have deep gum pockets because when I was younger, um, I don't know what I was doing with how I was brushing or something. I would floss, but I still get like a lot of uh, buildup. And so I started getting a lot of gum recession. So my old dentist never bothered with it because he was like, I know this guy's gums are just how they are. But this new dentist was younger and more aggressive and was like, we should do a deep cleaning. We anesthetize your whole face and we get in there and scour nice. it out. And I'm like, that sounds really shitty. <laughs> and I, I told her, I said, listen, I'm a minimalist. I'm a, kind of a medical nihilist. I actually don't like doing stuff if if it's not gonna show benefit. She's like, well, there's an oral systemic health benefit. You know, We don't know about inflammation. I go, well, do you see inflammation? No, you just see gum recession, right? So maybe that's all it is. And she goes, okay, well, maybe I'll just try to clean it a little better with your regular cleaning. So what that translated into, and I don't know if I'd like offended her or what, but she got aggressive <laughs> on the cleaning to where, you know, your face, these nerves are right connected. Like it's a short path, the pain fibers. So that's why face pain is so painful. I, it just sucks. So she's doing this and I'm feeling it. It's like someone's drilling into my skull and she's just using that thing like mm, that yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And she told me, she goes, if you have discomfort, just raise your hand, I'll stop, we'll, I'll back off. And I was like, fuck that. Let's do, let's see. Get it done. Let's see, yeah, show me what you got. Mm -hmm. It was exactly that. And dude, again, pulsating, I just find it as pain. Then I said, let, let go of the label, feel, just dive into it. Like this is all there is in the universe is this sensation. And 
I tell you, I don't know how long she was doing it, but it was just, it was this and this and this intense, da, 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 da. and then she was done. And she was like, how was that? I was like, well, it was the, one of the most intense experiences. And I was like, but it was cool. You can do it again next time if you want. I mean, that, that's how it was. Mm -hmm. It is surrender without judgment. It's very hard. Well, that's that that's that emotional repression that you were talking on a recent Angelo thing too, and I thought that was really profound. And I, I I knew this, but you know it's great to be reminded of it. It's not the thing; it's the resistance. The to resistance, the thing. yeah. You know, you it isn't that that anger is bad or sadness is bad. It's that it's that you are resisting it. That's what hurts. That's what creates suffering. Mm -hmm. Now there are people who get very offended by that. Like you're taking away their identity by saying your suffering is optional, right? Mm -hmm. Because their pain is not optional. Like pain is not optional. Like if you're gonna have pain, the sensation of neck pain or the sensation of drilling into your tooth or whatever it is, then that's not necessarily optional. Like there are people who have very bad luck. They have bad medical conditions. That pain is absolutely real. What is optional and people hate to hear this is that the suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. That's the resistance to the pain. And dropping the resistance means that there's just that. And, and you know, these things have a life force. You know, like you said, your story, you're unearthing it. It almost wants to be. It's like got this primal urge of this, of the universe to create. It, it wants to be, and emotion wants to be. Sadness, sorrow, anger. It's telling you, it's like, here I am, like, recognize me. And when you do, when you just dive in, you go here, stay as long as you like, mm -hmm. do your thing. Dude, it comes, it inhabits, it goes. You, you're less reactive. You, you don't act out about it. It's really, I mean, as a guy to, to talk about this stuff even, it's like stigmatized. Like, what, you're talking about emotions? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I know that I, I don't know if you, maybe this is going far afield, but I, um, the Sedona method, you know, the Sedona, the I don't Sedona know this, method. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a stylized version of, you know, everybody's got to put their brand on something, but it's basically <laughs> like, you know, you look things in the eye and you let them go. It's very, uh, it's very much what you said. Yeah. And I remember like I was going through some, I, I had, I had some kind of tough emotional times. And I remember like, in it, that was all I could hold on to in that moment was like, okay, I'm just going to, and one of the things was just, just let go and just let it overwhelm you. Like, okay, you're panicked that you're going to like lose your house and you're going to be living out of a box or whatever else. And if you just let, I just let that come, just yeah. let it come. And, and just, it was really intense for a while. And then you, we get like, okay, well, that's all you got. Okay, I guess I'm in the exact same position that I was uh, five minutes ago, but now I feel better about it. That's that's it. And the thing is, we have to understand it will be intense. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, the awakening process of like any of that kind of process is going to do that. It's going you you have to understand. Angela says in the beginning of the book, you will have to do this. Like, if I appreciate you're, that he did that, right? Mm -hmm. And he says, but you'll never not have the support or the means necessary to deal with it. You will feel like you don't. Mm -hmm. you, your, a thought will come and say, you can't bear this. And the truth is, no, you can, mm -hmm. you can. And actually bodhisattvas, little, little, little uh, compassionate entities will pop up all around you when you're on the path. They just do. It's again, that return on serendipity, that return on luck mm -hmm. when you're open like that. And you'll always have the tools, but you will have to do that work. Like you have to face that. And, and his, his, his other statement is, you can resist once that process starts, but I don't recommend it. It will be very unpleasant. Right. You will suffer. Yeah. 
Yeah, one of the uh, one of the realization moments that I had, where I was like, "Oh, I think I understand something." I felt all enlightened for like five minutes. Was I felt like I understood that whole existence is suffering thing. I was ah. like, "I was like, oh, I think I get this now." Yeah. Now, of course, I can't access it again right now, dude. I've had that experience. I, 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 it was so relieving. So relieving. It's like, oh no, that's the nature of reality. Yeah, suffering is absolutely essential. It's what is. It's mm -hmm. exactly right. And again, you can't you can't access it easily unless you drop into that state. But there there was even a point on retreat where the suffering of the entire world was felt viscerally by me. Like Ooh. I was like, oh, that's suffering. It is that resistance in this incarnation of what, what this is. And, and, and the thing is the feeling of it, the inhabiting of it leads to an outpouring of unconditional love. Like you're just like, dude, everybody's suffering. Everything is suffering. Like that's the manifestation, awesome. Like it's a grace because it shows us that we can absolutely unconditionally love in the face of that. And there's a deep underlying current of okayness. Like you said, like everything's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, that was what it. I remembered about it was, was basically, I, I don't know what it was, but I do remember thinking everything's okay. And I just kind of have to trust that. I just kind of have to go, okay, I believed it in the moment. So I guess I'm gonna believe it now. Imagine if your story that you're telling yourself is, it's not gonna be okay. Suffering is horrible. Mm -hmm. Everything I can do to avoid it is a good idea. Well, that's a different story you're living then. You're living well, we talked. I mean, I talk a lot about that in the story solution, actually, the idea of what are the stories that you're telling yourself. You know, so people are telling, uh, I'm not creative. I'm too old to do this. I'm too young to do this. I'm not that kind of person. Like those are all just stories. Stories, thoughts, beliefs. Mm -hmm. Or yeah. uh, so-and-so won't approve. Well, okay, so number one, they might approve. You know, how do you know? And yeah. number two, even if they don't, what... I mean, this is an interesting one. When people think about disapproval, mm. well, so-and-so is going to disapprove and they're going to have a problem with it. Yeah, but uh, who gives a shit? Yeah. Like there's an, a real element of like, what? so what is the injury there? It's me perceiving them not approving of me. Yeah. They're not beating me with a stick. I'm I'm somehow wounded because you think less of me, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And again, that that involves an assumption that we're separate from everything. <laughs> right. Which is a tricky one because that's one of the difficult things to dissolve in realization is the sense of separation. And yet it is the fundamental delusion actually that can be seen through that um, you and this are not two things. You and I are actually not two things. And in fact, even what we think we are, like I think I know your internal state, you must be somewhat like me, you're seeing the world a certain way. It's like, yeah, yeah all of that is just happening, but really, it's not what we think. <laughs> yeah. The separation that we think is there is not really there in that way. And you feel it, it, it's not something you can articulate, it's not something you can believe. It is felt instinctually, deep inside. And, and, and again, having felt that very directly on retreat where you are blown open, you know, it's like a psychedelic experience mm -hmm. in a way, but over six days or seven days or whatever. And, and uh, it becomes so viscerally real. You're like, yeah, that's a thing, that's real. And then you're like, how do I get back there? Was it super uncomfortable? I've heard that sometimes long-term meditation is almost like a bad trip sometimes, like you have those moments. It can absolutely be. The, the bad trip for me was an afternoon where um, the previous night I'd woken up with like just crushing substernal chest pressure. Like I thought I was gonna have to call 911. Ooh. Yeah, I was lying in bed like this. I've told this story, but I'll, I'm gonna tell it in a different way because I was lying in, so this was like day three or something, lying in day two or three. And so you de develop this concentration and weird shit happens on retreat. Like these strange things that you can't even talk about because people will just think you're crazy. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things that happened with me was I had this incredible pressure and I, I panicked, like I woke up like this. And I, I'd woken up out of a very lucid dream of one of the other people at the retreat 
who had a sister and they were fighting and it was emotionally charged. Hmm. And I felt this suffering. And then I woke up with this thing and I it just come out of this. I'm like, oh my God, was so-and-so arguing with her sister? Like, I'll have to remember to ask her about that. But first I have to call 911 because I'm dying. Right. And, uh, and then I was like, well, okay, maybe I'm not dying. I know that these things can happen on retreat. Calm down, take a breath, get up. I got up, it was like two in the morning, got up and was just literally sat down in the chair next to the bed in this little room. And closed my eyes, fell right into a deep like meditative state. And at that point, like all the suffering in the universe, like just channeled right through out my chest like this, <laughs> like I could feel it. It was palpable energy. And I remember thinking like, this is like the most intense roller coaster ride. Like, and I wanted to resist it, but I'm like, well, let me try to surrender, but I can't, I want to resist it. And just this ebb and flow of this energy. And then it just kind of passed. And it was this absolute bliss of relief. But the next day, and again, I, I'm not even doing the story justice, right? The next day, um, all day I was destabilized. Like I felt this, everyone suffering, like it was horrible. I go back to my room in between the things and just like rock back and forth weeping and just abs were hurting from crying, like so much pain. Like I remember just remembering, like it was crazy. Like things would just, images would pop in my head of uh, a Game of Thrones where, uh, they burn that little girl at the stake. I actually haven't seen oh, it. Oh, you haven't seen it? Oh, they burn this little girl at the stake and her parents have to watch and all. I'm just like, oh my God, a stupid shit like that. Like this is a story, right? But it felt absolute, because I know that's happened sometime in human history. Mm -hmm. And you just feel the suffering and it was paralyzingly painful. And yet the next thing was to not resist it. And then realize the reason that was happening is to realize that you have an unlimited store of compassion. Like, it's just pure love. Like, oh my God, of course, everyone suffers. So that's why that's why we have unconditional, infinite love. It's all that. And it felt so real. I mean, it was absolutely true. People say everything is love and you're like, that's a cliche until it isn't. Until it isn't. <laughs> until it isn't. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is why I think the stories do change the world. Yes. I mean, change is not made through legislation on, a, on, a, on a, an actual day-to-day -day level. The, the, the positive changes that have been made, especially in like acceptance sort of circles are not legislated. You can't say, hey, everybody love each other. Yeah. You know, it comes out of watching a movie where it puts you in another person's shoes. You know, I mean, you mentioned that Game of Thrones. Um, I know that after I saw Jojo Rabbit, mm. um, it, I was powerful. Shaken. Yeah, shaken. Yeah, yeah me I, too. And I remember my wife was just like, are you, are you okay? Like I, it affected I, me like nothing else. I was messed up for like a week. Oh yeah. yeah I was yeah. walking around in a daze. Yeah. I couldn't shake it off. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's, that can't be done unless you slip below the defenses. Mm. You know, story is, story is a Trojan horse. <laughs> you know, it gets in there and it lets you experience things that you're like, I'm not going to experience that. Those gives, people, I disagree with them. Gives you a safe way to do it. Yeah. A, a, a acceptable way to do it. Yeah, Jojo Rabbit, absolutely. Just fucking destabilizing. Cause it's raw suffering, right? Mm -hmm. And you feel everybody's suffering. It was, uh, that one was just, Absolutely, I've forgotten about that movie. I must have blocked and, it. Out. And I don't know why, but that affected me way more than other Holocaust movies. Sure, absolutely. There was something about it. You know, it was the disarm, the disarming, the humor, the humor disarming. component. Like why, why cut, what's his name, Watiti? Yeah, uh, Taika Watiti. I was like expecting a comedy, and I watched it with my kids, and my kids were just like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, and. Uh, and I was the same way. I was just like, oh. Comedy is disarming. I, I have this uh, story I've told a few times where I was in uh, high school and I, um, there was a, we just knew we had an assembly. 
Hmm. You know, when you had an assembly in high school, it's like, oh, we don't give a shit what it is. We get out of class. Yeah. Go spend an hour. And we knew it was going to be some sort of entertainment, we, but we didn't know what it was. And we knew it was going to be like, and it turned out to be kind of a comedy show, but not lame, right? Because like, you try to make teenagers laugh and oh. it, it can go horribly, horribly yeah. wrong. Inauthentic. Yeah. But it was very, very well done. It was this group. That, their name was Code Blue. I've tried to locate them since and I can't. And they, um, they were very... They were very funny and they were like making fun of the, you know, oh, I had the story about this friend who had a brother who the brother, they, they always picked on each other just like you with your, and it just very, very, nobody saw it coming. It very, very, very slowly became, so that brother that you heard about, oh, he died of AIDS. Oh, wow. And and there was like, and all these things that they'd seen and had us laughing, the whole auditorium was laughing. And then it, when they got to the serious stuff, it was like they slipped a blade beneath the armor. Oh. And, and I remember that assembly was over. Everybody was crying. You yeah. try to get a, get a bunch of teenagers. To cry. Yeah. I mean, they hit they hit um, uh, everything. They hit STDs. They hit drug overdoses. They hit alcoholism. They hit don't drink and drive. And all the shit you can never get teenagers to listen to. Yeah, yeah. And they, oh my God, it, I've never forgotten Dude, that. that's awesome. It was amazing. That's the story Fucking magic, man! Yeah. Like because you get you, you know even you're telling the story, I'm feeling it. It's yeah. it's a it's a human empathic connection, and story is the vehicle for it. I told that to Sean just a couple of weeks ago because he'd never heard it for some reason, even though I tell stories over and over. And I was getting choked up telling him about yeah, it. Yeah, it's crazy. He's like, I can see it on your face. Fucking nuts! Mm-hmm. It, uh, you know, man, it's like scared straight, but done right. Yeah, you know, and 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 it gives you the so this idea of like story as the tool like look look at this poor kid in the five-year-old in morocco i don't know if you saw the story that fell down a well mm. and the world was watching the story as typically is done with these well stories and but the kid died mm. right so I didn't know that. you can empathize with like the world is outpouring this grief for this kid in morocco you can empathize with that kid you feel the story you feel it emotionally as a parent as a, another kid it doesn't matter but how do you empathize with a famine in somalia or the mass deaths of refugees or, you know, uh, uh, an entire island, you know, sinking under the waves, you know, with, you know, sea level rise or something. You can't because it doesn't make that kind of story, that story that resonates. It's not a one-on-one connection. That's right. So the story can be used beautifully to get people to pay attention to things that actually do matter. That's why I think, you know, when, when, when we do shows and all that, I'm trying to tell stories as much as I can. Those are the things that really resonate. One of the good examples was a, you can talk about vaccines all you want to, you're blue in the face. If you're really opposed to vaccination, it's usually for good reasons. You uh, feel like you've been lied to, you don't trust the government, you're worried about side effects, you think it's too new, you've been naturally infected, you're worried. Okay, well, so someone emails me and tells me the story that they were that person, then they, infected their father who proceeded to get very sick, hospitalized and died. Mm. And they told the story in a beautiful way. And so I just relayed the story. Well, I get about a million emails from people who are like, you know, I went and got vaccinated because I don't wanna hurt my X or Y or Z. So now it's no longer about them. It's about empathic connection with someone else, which is very powerful. Now that, again, I don't wanna beat people on the head and say, well, this is why you should go get vaccinated. It's just like, that's an example of if you feel it, Sometimes the only way to feel it is to feel it. And a story is the way to do that. And to not be beaten over the head. 
Because then cognitive dissonance is in the way saying, well, hold on, I agree with you in theory, but you're telling me what to do, so fuck that. Fuck that. That's psychological reactance mm -hmm. too, where you're just like, no. And they documented this in the first, in the 1918 flu pandemic, that there were a lot of people who would not wear masks because they were they did not want to be told what to do, which is, an, is a fundamentally sure. American value. Like if you talk about like character development, you know, in the mm -hmm. story of America, well, fuck, we told Great Britain to fuck off. So like, that's who we are. We, we don't like being told what to do. And so mm -hmm. how do you then, if you really think masks are helpful, which again, I, I don't know how compelling science is for like say kids or something, and you could, there's a lot of nuance, but let's say we assume they're helpful. How would you convince Americans to do it? Mandate it? Well, that's exactly the wrong answer in most cultural situations. In the Bay Area, it's easy because people have a more collectivist I ideal and they're fine with it. And it's been politicized in a way that liberals really love it. I see. Bay Area is very liberal. It's a tribal eye badge. I wear my mask. Do you? Do you wear your mask? In Texas, where you're uh, living, very different badge. Oh yeah. Right? So how do you then use story? If you think, like if public health thinks, okay, that look, the data says this is absolutely something. Like with vaccines, if you're older and you're not vaccinated and you haven't been infected, you're really rolling the dice with your life with COVID because that's where the risk is highest. Okay, so let's say we really know that's good science, which I think is true. How do you get those guys to vaccinate? You gotta use story. Yeah, I think it's the only way. <clears throat> I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm actually really curious about the flip side of this. So so I just scheduled, sketched a note while you were talking because I wanted to talk about this is, so story is great at creating empathy. So you mentioned the story of the kid in Morocco or any, any but um, so do you, have you seen, a, there's a, Bo Burnham has a special called Inside. Have you seen that? It's oh, on I Netflix. haven't seen it yet, yeah. I, I mean, I the first time I tried to watch it, I was like, this isn't my, this isn't my jam. And then somebody made me watch it again. And I was like, okay, this is brilliant. Ah. So f for me, it, it really, it spoke to that generational angst of mm -hmm. like this, this generation feels that the world is fucked up and there's nothing they can do about it. Right. And so I was, uh, I've talked to this about my, to my kids about this too, is where is that line where, I mean, we're, so Dunbar's number is what, 150, 150 people were supposed to be able to psychologically be able to deal with in a, a tribe. Yeah. So what is it that when we're expected to pay attention to and empathize with 8 billion people? So where is that line? Because I want to have empathy as a human being, but you can't take on, there's a, the futility that I heard coming from my kids. Like, it's almost like, well, the world is ending we are, you know, they don't have any hope because they feel like it's all on their shoulder. Or they do have hope, but it's on their shoulders. Uh -huh. They have to worry about everything and fix everything. Yeah. And I'm like, you can't do you that. You can't do that. And a lot of that is conditioning in the media and in the collective sphere of consciousness where they keep getting fed this information that look, everything's collapsing, this doomsday glacier is gonna collapse, um, social media is destroying everything and it's, it's all on you, we're out. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's not, uh, there's nuance in all of this, there's context in all of this, you know? There's, there are challenges, no doubt. So the way I talk about this is I make a distinction between empathy, which only works on that 150, that even actually only one, empathy is a spotlight as Paul Bloom talks about in his book, Against Empathy, he wrote a book, psychologist about this. Um, empathy is feeling someone else's pain as your own and acting from that feeling, whatever that is doesn't necessarily mean doing the right thing. It means acting from that feeling. Right. Like I know what you feel like, oh, I'm gonna do something. And these kids are like, shit, man, you know, like I empathize with that polar bear or the kid in the well or whatever. I gotta go do something. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that something may be not very productive. It may be, first of all, taking on that pain yourself, which is no good, because that's gonna burn you out, make you tired. 
And less responsive. Less responsive, so more, less empathic. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is you may do things that aren't actually helpful in the, in the grand scheme. They're short-term solutions to reduce the pain that don't actually help. Like you go buy an electric vehicle, but it turns out the electric vehicle uses rare earth metals from China that are killing like babies that are, you <laughs> or know, the whatever. the power grid is somehow more polluting It's more than, polluting yeah. than the, the fossil fuels. So th that being said, that's empathy. But what about what we talked about that I felt when this like heart thing opened up, the chakra as they call it. I hate that word because it's <laughs> so like woo woo. Um, compassion is love and understanding, unconditional love and understanding in the face of suffering. So it's saying, I totally f understand the suffering. I may feel it, I may not, but I understand it. Mm -hmm. And I am driven by unconditional love. You don't have to earn this love. This is, I, I, I want the suffering to be less. And that may mean simply letting myself off the hook to do it because I know that that's not gonna solve the problem and it's gonna cause more suffering. It may mean making little changes. It may mean um, working in a bigger group. It may mean thinking long-term. It may mean tough love in the short run. Uh, there's a million ways. But in medicine, empathy burns you out. Compassion is inexhaustible. It's mm -hmm. unconditional. And it is a driving operating system that you can cultivate through practice that actually grows. So that's how I like to think about it. Hmm. Um, I've actually made videos about this, like why I hate empathy. <laughs> did, you, did you read the, uh, the Art of Happiness by any chance? Uh, the Dalai Lama? Yeah. Uh, I, you know what's funny is it was given to me and I never read it. I, I really, I really like that book. It's ah. it's very it, it's very Western friendly. It yeah. doesn't feel like it's full of you know Zen stuff. Right. But it's that's actually when you were speaking that reminded me of it because that distinction between empathy and compassion is one that the Dalai Lama makes ah. in that book, and ah. he talks about because there are questions of like what do you do when you feel you can't you know he's the spiritual leader in theory of. However many right exactly of people, a, lo yeah. a lot like we're very focused on you know spiritual leader and so it'd be really easy to feel like okay it's his job to feel all the pain of all the world and right. and so the question was like how do you endure and it was it was something along those lines like I have compassion for them but I know that there's only so much I can do and so I do what I can and but that's a very mature mind thing and so teenagers today it's easy to just be overwhelmed. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're still working through their own emotions. They're coming up with their own identity structures. When I watch my own adolescence, you know, I, I kind of look at them and I go, watch this forming. Like this is where the sense of separation starts to really congeal. Like I am me and you are you and yeah. the twain shall not meet. And also the identity belief structures. I am this type of person. I'm good at this. I'm not good at this. I have these friends. I don't have these friends. And watching the emotion stuff, like, oh, you're feeling this emotion. I can see you repressing tears. Like what, what, what happens if you just allow yourself to feel that, you know? And sometimes I'll just point blank talk to them. They always go, oh, daddy's going into guru mode. Cause I'll just be like, listen, little chick, like yeah. here, here's, here's what daddy learned the hard way, you know? And, they, and then I realize there's a, there's a term called Zen stink. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that I have it. Like, I'm just like, oh, I think I'm all enlightened because I've had mm -hmm. a couple, you know, peak experiences. It's like, no, 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 you're still learning. So be very humble in the face of this cause you don't know what the fuck you're doing. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, I'll tell you though that that idea of holding holding suffering without it destroying you, you realize, you know, again, and, and it's intuitive, it's instinctual that that that's just the nature of what we are. We can hold infinite suffering because we have infinite love. And it sounds fucking so cliche, but it's absolutely true. It's funny, even when I talk about it, like I hold myself right here. It's almost like 
it's an embodied kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And it's 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 on offer for everybody. Some people feel it in church. Some people feel it through organized religion. Some people feel it through chanting and prayer. Some people feel it in nature. Some people feel it on drugs. Some people feel it with meditation. Some people never feel it. Um, until they die. Until they die. <laughs> then they become it. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so dude, I just realized, speaking of kids, I gotta, I gotta go tend yeah, to my- Yeah, yeah, you, you do. You do. Man, that was- that was in some epic conversation right there. I'm, I'm going to listen back and see if it was coherent. It felt coherent, but it was so in the now. Right? It doesn't even matter because yeah. it's going out as it is. Because yeah. like you said, you you, un, you unearth these things. Yeah. The people the people who are interested in these kind of conversations will be interested in this. And the people who aren't will go find something else. Yeah. That's the beauty of the algorithm, right? Yes. It'll feed you what you need to see. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you got to control your own algorithm. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Stand Every- guard at the gates of your mind. Ooh, I like that. I I didn't make it up. I don't I don't know who it came from. It's a good T-shirt. Stand guard at the gates of your mind. Anybody knows? I'm sure they'll email you. That's beautiful. <laughs> Stand guard at the gates of your mind, and then that means being aware, being having that meta awareness. Which it's we also talked why about. I don't watch the news. Yeah, me too. I just will read occasional articles that'll show up in my feed, but I don't watch any the of that. The stuff that is most relevant makes its way to me. Yes, that's why I stopped uh, using Twitter as an app. Mm. What I find is I dump stuff there and then the, the responses that actually will matter, like if there's a big shit show or something happening, I'll get texts from people that are like, hey, I saw that thing happening on Twitter where you got canceled. I was like, what? Nice. <laughs> and then I'm like, tell me about it because mm-hmm. I'm not going to go there. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're saying that you know you said this or that. I'm like, oh yeah, I totally said this or that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How should I react to that? Yeah, what should I do? I guess I'll just ignore it because it doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. For Brother. Sure. Yeah, great, man. That was I, great. I'm uh, really grateful that you found all that serendipity to unearth the story of you and I talking. Yeah, how about that, huh? Yeah, it's, and it, I'm gonna give you full credit for that. Although I had a small role in that, not screening you out of my email box. Well, you had a small role in that I was the, uh, I was the asker. Like in this case, I, I approached you. You could have you ignored me. You could have been like, who the fuck is this guy? But you also never, you never said, hey, I wanna be on your show or I wanna talk about books or I wanna do none of that. No, I was, actually when you said, hey, can you come? Cause I knew you only did it in person. You said, yeah. hey, can you come out? And I was like- Yeah, you were like, no. Nah, I'd, I'd love to, but I'm not gonna be in San Francisco. Yeah. And then it serendipitously happened yeah, you're on your that. way somewhere, but you went out of your way to like- I did. Yeah. It, it, it felt important. I, I'm, I'm trying to obey those, those hunches, those yeah. feelings more Me and more. Too. Me too. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we listened to our intuition on this for one. Right, for real. It's a pleasure. Uh, guys, Johnny B. Truant, I'll put his links to all his stuff um, in the uh, notes on my website and in descriptions. Uh, if you like what we do, Join our tribe of ideal readers. Ideal readers. Ideal readers, the supporter tribe, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And uh, Johnny has his own tribe of devoted readers who will- uh, Don't look for me on social though. I'm not on social. Thank God. You're such a smart guy. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you're you're dialed in. And uh, share the video and we are out. Thank you, brother. Thank you, man. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, 
Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.